Welcome everybody back to the Let's Run.com Track Talk podcast. It is our first episode of 2021. We made it, people. It's an Olympic year. Again, we're going to talk about predictions for the 2021 year in running. We're going to talk about what we're looking forward to most this season. We have a thrilling Hakone Ekaden to discuss. We've got some athletes changing shoe sponsors. Looks like we're going to have an indoor track season to discuss. Robert Weldon, hope you had a happy new year. Commiserations on your Dallas Cowboys finally, mercifully, being eliminated from playoff contention. And welcome to the show. Thank you, John. It's been a long time. It's been 20 years since the Cowboys have matched the Patriots in the NFL season. Well, and I'm extremely happy. What, what, what? This isn't true at all. We went 7-9. and nine, You went 6-10? and 10? Uh, Okay. Well, at least we'll be drafting higher like the Philadelphia Eagles. It's all about the draft picks, as we all know. But, John, I'm excited. I'm, I mean, it is a new year and hopefully an Olympic year. So I'm excited to be here. But this is – I am so excited for this podcast because at the end of it, we're going to have me fulfilling a promise that I've made to the podcast listeners for week after week and never come through. And you always say I never follow through my promises. At the end of today's show, folks, we're going to have the super shoe expert, Jeff Burns, the guy who gave up his pro contract so he could run in a better pair of shoes. He knows all about the shoes. He's tested these shoes. He's going to tell us the lowdown. And I haven't, we haven't interviewed him yet, John. We're interviewing him tonight at four, this afternoon at four. But in setting up the interview, John, I got so excited. It was like a kid in a candy store. Robert may have gotten excited, but we just lost 20% of our audience. Sick of the shoe talk. Happy New Year, guys. A couple years ago in the first podcast of the year, I said, hey, we should do a podcast every week. And it's been tremendously successful. So maybe we need to start a new habit in 2021. If anyone's got any ideas what the Letron.com habit should be, you just kind of put some in the calendar, you start doing it every week or every day then becomes part of your routine. Any ideas for Let's Run.com, email us, pod at Let's Run.com, or you can call us, as Robert says, unlike Facebook, unlike Twitter, one 844 run option seven. You can leave a voicemail for the podcast. But I'm curious, we're always trying to prove ourselves at Let's Run. Any ideas for the new year, email us, let us know. Well, the phone number is a, is a real thing, I, and I think it's actually important. If you want to reach me, you can call me. I just was reading last night about a guy who spent $40 million in Facebook advertising. His Facebook account has been deleted, completely deleted. He cannot reach anyone at the company. It's impossible. This guy's whole livelihood is now gone because he can't reach them. So the USPS is still struggling to get some of the shoes out. I've gotten lots of complaints. Jonathan Galt, employee, star employee, still hasn't gotten his shirt because of the Postal Service. Employee 1.1, Steve did get it. The bag was ripped open, and his shirts had been dumped in the mud by his po- local postal delivery. So hopefully you guys have gotten your shirts, but if not, email me. Shop at letsrun.com is the actual store email address. But, John, let's get to the action. You don't want to talk shoes, so let's talk Hakone. Yeah, so the Hakone Ekaden, this is the Super Bowl of Japanese collegiate running. It is – I. Th- I believe it's the most popular sporting event period in Japan. I mean, well, the viewing figures were about 60 million. Robert, can you tell us about this? I have all the details, folks. First of all, if you want to follow Japanese running, you got to go to J- Japan Running News by Brett Warner. Just Google it. It's, he's amazing. He has sent me an email with even more details. But, John, it's not just the best the Super Bowl of collegiate running. It's the Super Bowl of sports in Japan. This is the number two most watched event 
in all of Japan, the number one sporting event of the year. The number one um, most watched event in all of Japan is the New York New Year's Eve music show. show. This is number two. Over the two days this year, it's been estimated 60 million people. That's one half of the population of Japan watched this race for at least a few minutes. Um, its peak re- its p- peak viewership was like 41% of TVs were onto it at a single time. It takes place over two days. Again, it, it's absolutely amazing. But for this year, for the first time in like 20 years, on the last stage, after what? How many hours of running? 11 hours? Of, uh, no, more than that, right? The winning time was 10.56, so almost 11 hours of running. There was a come from behind win for... Komazawa University, they knocked off the upstart Soka University. Soka University has only been, I think it's only, they first made the meet like in 2015. They've only actually qualified like four times, four or five times. They had a seemingly out of nowhere day one win. They got a huge lead, a three-minute lead going into the last leg. But they were run down on the 23-kilometer leg as Takuma Ishikawa was the hero. He actually produced the fastest leg of the day, 69-12. And one thing people, Brett Warner's recap didn't mention was the guy on, on for uh, for the losing team, I shouldn't say the losing team, the second-place team, Yuki Onodera of Soka. John, he ran the slowest leg, 73-23, and was crying at the finish. It, it, it was a pretty exciting sporting event. And what I thought was very interesting, Brett Warner's piece highlighted this is you can hear sort of the coaches that they have like a feed essentially of the coaches uh they're on one of the lead vehicles and this is from brett's article right before the coach's pursuit car peeled off at nihonbashi with one kilometer to go kamazawa head coach hiroaki oyagi shouted out over the car's loudspeaker for ishikawa to go harder and get the stage win then a play on his usual negative motivation he told him you did it. You're a man. When Ishikawa heard that, he was all smiles, one that lasted all the way to the finish line. So that's fairly epic, you know, coming from behind to win on the final stage. It hasn't happened for 20 years. But this sort of sets the stage. Maybe New Year, New Me. I have a hot take on this thing, Robert. And it's pretty, I would say it's fairly scorching, is Ekadens are overrated. I'm sorry. This is the first time in 20 years that someone has come from behind on the final stage. How is that possible? Like, would you, in a Super Bowl, it, would people enjoy the Super Bowl if the team that got out to the lead never lost the lead, if no one came from behind to win the Super Bowl for 20 years? I mean, there was that period in the 80s where the NFC was winning every year. It was kind of a blowout. It wasn't that interesting. I don't know. I just don't think, there are exciting ways of running. Like, there's cross-country races. These guys have seen cross-country, Right. They've seen like marathons where everyone is running at the same time and you don't have to have them ridiculously spread out over a 10-hour race. I mean, to me, it's just, I don't know. I guess there is some excitement. But if it, if the race is always decided by the latest stages, that's just not that interesting to me. John, 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 John. Uh, you privately expressed your disdain for the academic. And then I didn't think you'd have the, goals, the, the, the guts to say it on the podcast. At least you did say it to the public, what you said to me off air. But... I, I can't believe you said this. First of all, Weldon, now that John has, just, has criticized the Japanese people, I think it's clear we should not take him to the Olympics. He would not fit in culturally. He would offend the locals. So I think you and I should go to the Olympics. John, you can stay home and maybe edit a few results, stuff like that. 
You don't want to get COVID, John. It's too risky for you as a young man with your with your future ahead of us. Weldon and I have lived good lives. We've already propagated our offspring. So if we get COVID and go down, it, it- well, this is weird. It's a devoted listener of the Let's Run.com podcast. I've been told I'm young. I'm not at risk at all. I'll recover. I have no chance of dying. I mean, I, I listened to you guys' COVID advice all year last year. You said I'm the perfect specimen to go to Japan. Well, but now that you've insulted the locals, I don't think it's a good idea. And plus, your family, neither you or your sister has produced offspring. We need the galt genetics to go on. Um, anyways. Yeah, this is just a couple points. I forgot about that because I think for – was I the odd man out last year at the Olympics? I'm pretty sure I wasn't going because I had a new child. I was fine to stay home. But now it's a new calendar year, and I think last time we checked for sure we have two credentials at the Olympics. And if I'm counting correctly, there's three of us here in this podcast. And, John, being a very woke person yourself, this culture – you can't even say appropriation. Just this dismissiveness of the Japanese culture was – so offensive. I don't know if you'd be welcome in the country. I mean, this is, John, as you said, the most second most popular thing on television in all of Japan. And to me, I think that shows, like, I don't know. There's cultural things for sport. I mean, like, think look at America, right? Football and baseball, most popular sports here. Although basketball is probably catching up with ratings. I think NBA finals ratings and MLB ratings are pretty close. But those sports aren't popular anywhere else in the world. And the fact that this decadent thing, you're like, hey, it's actually pretty boring if you think about it. After 10 hours of running, one team's going to be way ahead. Gets these ratings in Japan is fascinating. It shows it's about maybe the people striving and just the lead up to the race and the stories behind it. I'm not sure what it is because I think another 20% of our viewers turned us off when we started talking about the Hakon Ekaden. I just find it a little ridiculous. Brett Lana's recap, he says thrilling last second come from behind victory this was not last second he passed him with like 2k to go and this is the most exciting thing by far that's happened in the race for about 20 all right maybe i'm talking about my ass here i've not followed the last 20 hakon ekadens but if there hasn't been a change of lead on the last 20 anchor legs i mean i think by default this is probably the most exciting thing that's happened so i don't I, i'm not trying to take a crap on japanese running culture i think it's great there's so much interest i love the traditions behind it i went on the ivy league trip to Japan in 2013, even though I didn't get to run in the Ekaden there. But I just think there are more interesting ways of running a race. Would I rather watch the best guys in the NCAA run against each other in a cross-country race, or would I see them spread out across ten, two days and 10 legs where you don't have the best guys in each leg? No, I'd rather see a cross-country race. John, 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 let me, let me, let me set you straight here. When I was watching – actually, when I was reading the day one recap and this upstart team um, – Ended up getting second. So Soka had the lead. Actually, at the time, Brett said, there's no chance they're going to win. So I was actually excited by this. I said, wow, I wish we ran the Ekin in the U.S. And as you said, as you remember, on a recent podcast, I proposed that they run the in-state cross-country championships as an Ekin. I think it would be more exciting because it would be great. Like when I was at Cornell, one year we had a pretty good four-by-mile. I stacked the team. We went one, two, three, our best guys, and then we just hung our anchor out to dry. So the, this, the up-and-coming teams. The teams that are like Syracuse when they're getting like 15th in the country and no one's paying attention to them, they can stack the academics at the front, get the TV time, get the publicity, get the recruits, and then in a couple of years they can win it all. And you can notice that they're doing well instead of just being ignored. So I think it would be cool to do an academic. This is my theory in sports, make it more interesting. They should run NCAA crosses and academics like once every four years. They also, in NCAA basketball, John, this is my theory, you should get rid of the shot clock once every four years. You should wear short shorts once every four years. 
Make it interesting. Fight what, to get rid of the shot clock to make the sport more interesting? Robert, the reason the shot clock was instituted is because teams would just run out the clock and games were boring and low scoring. Every game would be a Big Ten game. That would be terrible. That's one of the worst ideas I've ever heard. Okay. Anyways, back, I was kind of kidding about that, but I would like to see just like a tournament maybe with no shot clock. It should be fun and short shorts. So anyway, but back to this race, John. What no one has reported is... You know, did this guy choke it up? He had Yuki Onodura had a three minute lead on the 23 kilometer final leg, and he was run down by Ishikawa. And I was like, well, no, no recap that I read talked about their PRs. I did read something where the, the, the second place coach said, said, I thought if we were down by two minutes, we couldn't make it up. And he, he came back from three minutes. I finally found their PRs. Brett Lorner, Japan Running News, um, amazing website, as I said. Got to go there to get all the details. But he had an incredible preview where he listed the PRs of all the runners for all the teams. Yuki Onodura, the hero, I mean, excuse me, the go, the guy who blew it, his PRs are 14.05 for 5K, 29.27, and 65.40 for the half. The guy that ran him down has 13.59, 28.45. So he's faster, but you wouldn't expect him to beat him by three minutes in half marathon. Although his half marathon PR is 63.07 versus 65.40. So the other guy is certainly... I mean, I guess you wouldn't predict that he'd run down three minutes, but I think you maybe could have thought, yeah, I can see how you could think he'd make up two minutes. because it It's also hard. harder to run from in front than when you have someone to chase. But in looking at these, the preview that, that Brett ran, there's 21 teams. Ten of them have a 10-man average, personal best, under 29 minutes. 18 of the 21 teams have a 10-man average under 29.10 for their personal best. That's crazy, right? Oh, it's incredibly deep. I'm not trying to say like J- Japanese running culture is broken. Like th- those, de- that kind of depth is unmatched. You go to the USA, it- it's it's just way way deeper than you see in American distance running for sure. Walter doesn't like that kind of talk. He's telling us to move on, but no, I have some fascinating things. Brett has sent me an email. I sent him some questions last night. I've gotten it back this morning. It's amazing. First of all, can we learn, John? You're not a big fan of the format, but can we learn from the Japanese? There's a few things I've asked Brett. I said, Brett. I never see the Kenyans running the anchor leg. Are there only certain legs that Japanese can run? And is there a limit to the Japanese runners? Yes, there is. Only one non-Japanese runner can run per team. And in Hakone, he's only seen Jap- non-Japanese runners run on the second, third, fourth, or fifth stages. So he's never seen them run on day two. So maybe that's a rule. At the, at the Pro Academy, which is actually on New Year's Day, they're only allowed, allowed to run on the second stage. So you have to run on the second stage. So, guys, can we learn something from the Japanese? Should we do something like that in the U.S.? I mean, college teams could limit their rosters to one non-American. I'm sure there's actually a few American-born citizens that would like to see the USA trials, the Olympic trials, doing that in the distance races, but that's not possible because they're citizens. <laughs> but seriously, on a college level, I mean, I see people all the time on the message board saying, like, state schools should only give scholarships to people from their states, but this is slightly different. But along those lines, what do you think? I find it hard to – I mean, in theory, it's somewhat interesting, but – it's going to be impossible to implement because look, there are so many other NCAA sports where you have so much other international talent. Like, you know, some basketball teams have multiple guys per team, other like swimming. I'm sure there are other, a bunch of other sports as well that deal with this. I don't think you could restrict it to just cross country. And I don't know. I, I don't think that the whole balance of the sport is out of whack because we have too many international athletes and NCAA cross country. I think it's still a pretty exciting team. Like look at BYU. They just won it all last year. And I don't know if they have a, international athlete on their entire roster. So I don't think anything really needs to be changed. 
Yeah, I mean, you get into a huge debate about what the point of college sports is, what the point of colleges are. I hadn't really thought about it, but like a state school, yeah, should they be giving a scholarship to a foreigner? Like, but then you could argue, should they be giving a scholarship to someone out of state? I mean, there's a whole bunch of can of worms that you're opening up there. Interesting topic. John said to save the shoe talk for the end of the show, but I have to bring up something right now from the academic, John. The amazing Twitter account from at Sato Tetsu, we'll put a link in the show notes. He has counted up what shoes were worn in the Ekaden. 203 of the 210 runners ran the in some version of the Nike Super Shoe. That's 96.6%. Only 1.9% ran in Adidas, 1% Mizuno, 1.5% Mizuno, and one person ran in a New Balance shoe. So you guys think we have a f- level playing field? No, we do not. Jeff Burns will explain that at the end of the show. Well, that sounds like a very level playing field to me if they're all in the same shoe, Robert. Okay. So it was really level playing field when um, Scott Fobble didn't have access to that shoe at the Olympics. I'm saying in this specific event. I'm talking in general. As we talked about on last week's podcast, I have people that are going to be giving up their endorsement contracts because they want to run in a marathon shoe in a few weeks. So, yeah, it's not a level playing field. It's disgraceful for the sport where we are right now. You guys should start doing some research instead of pulling up PRs. I would be curious. I'm shocked. I mean, ASICs, Mizuno, they're Japanese companies. Do they not have sponsorship deals with these schools? I'm kind of shocked as popular as this academy is that they don't have shoe sponsorships where athletes are forced to wear a certain shoe. Or maybe that they view collegiate sports differently and they're like, well, the athletes are free to choose what's best for them. Who knows what the reasoning behind that is. But free PR for Nike on that one. It's interesting, though, if they didn't have access to the Adidas shoes because people now are starting to think the Adidas shoe might be really good. All right, Robert, are we good on the Ekaden talk here? I mean, look, I, again, I don't mean to crap all over the Ekaden, but to me, a sporting event, 10 hours, like f- this is five hours of running five or more per day for two days in a row. That's just, I don't like it when one sporting event is that long. I mean, I guess, I mean, test cricket, I used to watch test cricket. I mean, I don't, and now it's pretty hard to watch in America, but like, I don't know. Like fo- if a football game was 10 hours long, I don't think I'd like football as much. And that's why you'll be covering the 2021 Olympics from your Boston suburb, and we'll be in Tokyo celebrating the local culture. All right, should we get into our 2021 predictions, speaking of the Olympics, John, or should we get some of the news? I think you've been talking to coaches about whether we're going to actually have an indoor track season, cross-country season, et cetera. Yeah, let's talk about that real quick, and then we'll we'll finish with our predictions before the Jeff Burns interview. How about that? So indoor track, I mean, this was the big question. We kind of were talking like, you know, what's the schedule going to look like? Because you go on some of these websites, like USATF still has not announced whether they're having USA indoors right now. I mean, they, in the meet, I've talked to multiple people, it's scheduled for February 19th, 20th in Albuquerque, but you had, I would have no idea about that if you visited the USATF website. You go on the website for the University of Washington, normally one of the hubs of indoor track. They don't even have a 2021 schedule. Boston University, they have a schedule, but they just cross out all of the meets as they're canceled. So they don't they haven't gotten back to me about whether they're having meets, but it seems pretty unlikely. So there's a lot of uncertainty in the air right now about the track season, but it does seem like we're going to have one both for college and pros. The main gist I'm getting is college facilities, the ones that are hosting meets, there are a bunch of them in the SEC and the Big 12. There's going to be Texas Tech is hosting meets, Arkansas. 
Texas A&M, but it does seem like, and the Big Ten is going to have some meets as well, but it does seem like these meets are going to be pretty heavily restricted. Maybe about five schools per meet, no unattached competitors, and it's going to be priorities placed on either conference schools or schools in that direct geographic area. So the, a lot of pros, they'll warm up and they'll run these college meets indoor track. That's not really an option. Fortunately, it does look like there's going to be an indoor season as well of some sort. We've got Camel City. That's happening again February 6th. We've got a couple small meets in Birmingham, Alabama that Dave Milner's putting on January 24th and the 31st. We've got the New Balance Indoor Grand Prix is scheduled to be held in Boston on February 13th. They moved that back a week. Still kind of unclear why exactly to replace Milrose, but that seems to be going ahead. And then Paul Doyle is putting on uh, a four-meet series, the American Track League. They're going to have this thing. It's going to be on ESPN. It's going to be at the University of Arkansas four Sundays in a row. And he's hoping to have about 10 events, about eight track, two field. They're going to be going up to the, the mile. They'll have the 800. They'll have 60 hurdles, 60 flat, 200, 300, 400. So th- that's sort of what the indoor calendar is shaping up like right now. It might be harder to get into meets, but we are going to have some opportunities for the pros. This is great news because I thought we might just have an outdoor season. And I thought there could, there could be some cool things done. Done, You know, there's going to be a meet in Austin. It's already being organized outdoors where I'm back from. First time I've been on a plane in nine months. But, John, then I started talking to you yesterday, and they were like, no, people want to run indoors. And with Paul Doyle putting on these meets in ESPN, there'll be some exposure. That is great. It's a smart way to do it. And then we're still going to have the New Balance meet. I mean, we're going to have a sense of normalcy, and I think that's good. I mean, there's been some debate on pro sports, college sports, Kurt Streeter of the New York Times said, oh, the national champion of football should be UConn, who postponed their season. I totally disagree with that. I think we, we've shown college football had more issues than others, but like 25% of the UConn players got COVID anyway, and they didn't play a season. But these other kids had seasons, successfully seasons. It looks like you know there haven't been pro sports, same thing. So track and field needs to act like a pro sport and continue on. And Paul Doyle and some other guys are doing that. Great job, great news. And once the vaccine keeps rolling out, my parents are now in line to get the vaccine in Texas. Old people are up next in Texas, Florida, and Ohio, I think. Hopefully we can get some normalcy by outdoors. Wait, wait, wait. I know John doesn't like COVID talk, but UConn football didn't have a season, yet 25% of their athletes, of their football players still got COVID? That's hilarious. Hilarious isn't the word I would use there, Robert. But Put the word hilarious with COVID, please. Well, it, it's it just shows you that I don't know. People that think that having the sports is irresponsible. If, if you don't have the sports, young people are still getting COVID. So it's probably not. Again, having the sports is going to make them, the young people, probably behave in a more serious manner because they're going to be know they're getting tested all the time and they could blow their whole team season if they get it. You know, but John. It is interesting, Robert. So I was talking to an NCAA coach about that in cross country last week. And he said they'd had no cases on their team. And then like the week after their conference meet, they had a they had about four or five because he thought, look, they were very diligent about doing it. And then once their conference meet was over, that was what they were building up to at the end of the fall. They sort of let loose and immediately there were some several cases on that team. John, how's your family members doing? I just read two percent of Great Britain tested positive for COVID just last week. To my knowledge, they're all doing okay. Yeah, this whole COVID thing, I mean, uh, 
I don't know. When are we going to stop talking about COVID, I guess, is the question. Maybe that should be our prediction. We pick a date, and then after that, it won't be mentioned. Probably won't be – probably be into next year. Who knows? I think there's just a lot of, like, first-level thinking. It just shows this thing is pretty complex, and you need to think maybe beyond you do X, then Y happens, because sometimes it's X, Y, Z. There's a bunch of things happening. But big picture, we're having indoor track. It's good for the sports. We're also going to have a little cross country. It sounds like John, at least a little bit. I mean, yeah, the NCAA I, cross country meets happening. It's outdoors. I don't see why why that wouldn't happen. Yeah, that's scheduled for March fifteenth in Stillwater, Oklahoma. Robert, I was talking to Dave Smith earlier this week. I said, "Are we going to be able to have media there?" He said, "Look, I'm going to fight. I'm going to go to bats for you guys. I think we should have media. I mean, let's be honest. There aren't that many people who are going to fly out and cover this thing anyway." He wants some national media there. We qualify as national media. So I'm optimistic that we'll be able to be there for the meet. And beforehand, I mean, the interesting situation about this is indoors, there aren't that many indoor tracks out in the mountain and west regions anyway. And the ones that they do have, I mean, Washington, we don't know if that's going to happen. Albuquerque, they haven't even assembled their track right now. It's still in the building process. That's not going to be available until at least the middle of February. And then there are other ones in the big sky where they're playing football that their facilities aren't going to be available. So I don't know what they're going to, those schools are going to do for indoor track or if they're even going to pursue it. But we do have these two big time cross country meets in Las Vegas, February 1st and February 19th. UNLV is organizing a pair of meets. And it sounds like we're going to have Colorado, BYU's trying to go there, NAU, Washington, Iowa State bunch of the perennial powers in cross country are going to be going out to at least one of those two meets. So that should be pretty exciting. Not sure if they will be broadcast or not, but we'll at least have some results to digest. In terms of indoor track on the West coast, just have a couple of meets outdoors, you know, have a 60 meter outdoors, 60 meter hurdles. Like, I don't know why they have to go find an indoor track, especially during a pandemic. The NCAA should make an exception this year. You can qualify at an outdoor meet for the appropriate distance. That has already been a pro- uh, that has already been uh, applied for and rejected. I think shot put might be the only one where they're accepting outdoor marks, but pretty much every event they said no deal. Really? Yeah. See, I guess people don't agree. It's so first level thinking, I think, rejecting that. But who knows? Who knows? Uh, okay, a couple more things to address before we get to our predictions. We've had some shakeups. Uh, it's the as I predicted in last week's podcast. One of the storylines of this first week of 2021: people are out of contract, people are changing brands. Uh, a lot of people's contracts expired at the end of 2020. We've already had Ryan Hill has gone from the Bauman Track Club. He's now with Hoka Naz Elite. This is a surprise to us. We. We all pretty much took it as a given. It was he was probably going to go to that new Puma group in North Carolina, and he surprised us by going to NAZ Elite and Flagstaff. So, what do you guys take on this move? And does Ryan Hill have anything left? He was very good for a very long stretch in the 2010s, but 2019 he missed most of that year due to Achilles surgery. There are a lot of up and comers now. Uh, he was second in 2018, but can he make the Olympics or is is he washed? Okay, John. Point of order. You said us. Actually, on the podcast, I think it was you who said he was going to Puma, but Robert might have said it. I think Robert actually said it first, and then you said it's not official, but it's pretty obvious. I kept my mouth quiet, but since now we're emulating Japanese culture, I'll take one from the team and take the sword right here. Our apologies. We're wrong on that. 
And I think the Hoka signing is great. I think this is a great um, for all parties involved. And my analogy, and I emailed Ben Rosario this, I essentially said, great signing. Hopefully this is like when Roger Clemens left the Boston Red Sox, minus the steroids and everything. Yeah, it's like he's going to get on PEDs and transform his career. Great. (laughs) But I know Ben's a big sports fan. But Roger Clemens was sort of like floundering around his career. If you can just ignore the fact that he was on – but my thinking is probably on steroids his whole career, but who knows. Allegedly. Allegedly, Roger. I know he's very litigious. But – if you're stagnant, things are struggling. I mean, Nike made it easier by not offering him a contract, I assume. You need to try to change something else. And Ryan Hill has the best track credentials of anyone ever in the Hokanesia group. He's super talented. If you can run 730 for 3K, I mean, you you have superstar, top engine, world-class, Mercedes-Benz, Ferrari-type engine. Okay, okay. <laughs> so they get someone with that type of talent. He gets a new environment, new stimulus. He's going to be at altitude all the time. Like if he can get something back, he makes an Olympic team. If and Hoka's happy, if not, it might be a, who knows, it might even be just a one year deal, right? Like, who knows how long this deal's for? One year contract, it's more than one year. But I just feel like sometimes you, a change of scenery is good. And I think some of those other guys who have been at Bowerman, I mean, Jerry's one of the best coaches in, in the world. But if you're Chris Derrick, you. you Nobody probably doesn't like getting offered a contract, but try something else. You're, you're struggling. Maybe it's the injuries, whatever. But like, if you keep repeating what you're doing, you probably get the same result. I really like the move for them because he goes from being he was what maybe that you know he could have been their second or third best five K guy, but he could also be like their fifth or sixth best five K guy. So now he's sort of the guy at Hoker in that event, and I think it's Ben Rosario is a great coach. I think the best case scenario for Ryan is what we have with Lopez Lamont. Lopez Lamont, if you took him after the 2016 track season, you would have said, this guy's washed up, he's finished. And really, he was just had a couple bad years with injury. He comes back and he's better than ever in 2018 and 2019. And if you look at Ryan Hill, that's what you would say. You know, He made world championship teams in 2013, 2015, 2017. He was second in 2018. You know, he... His unfortunate, I guess his bad luck is that he wasn't at his best in the two Olympic years. He was a little off his game and making three world championship teams and missing out on two Olympic teams. You know, that's a little bit, that it's just bad luck. So I don't think he's washed up. I, I think he's still got some run in him, but it's a really hard team to make. And also he needs to make sure he's fully over those injuries issues because Achilles can be a mother effort to come back from. I mean, I see why Nike dropped him. They've got McGordy, Fisher, Kincaid, Lamong, Chalimo. All better than him in eight five thousand in recent years. So, do I think Ryan Hill makes an Olympic team? Unfortunately, no, I do not. Question I have is: Did anyone know? Did they also sign Evan Jager? Evan, if you're listening, you need to ditch Jerry and get a new coach. I, hey, I'll coach you. You can sign with anybody you want. You don't have to be locked into a certain coach because a certain shoe company offers you money. I promise you, you will make win an Olympic medal under my coaching. If you don't, I will pay you $25,000. <laughs> I knew this was coming. I knew as soon as we talked about Ryan Hill leaving Jerry and Weldon saying, oh, sometimes change is good. I'm like, Robert is immediately going to say Evan Jagan needs to leave Jerry. This is like, look, I don't want to compare this to a Trumpian claim of like just totally baseless and ridiculous, but the, 
I, I find your hot takes entertaining, Robert. This is one of your worst and stupidest dead horses that you're beating about Jager needs to leave Jerry. I just think it's dumb. You think that he can leave Jerry and that will give him 24 second, 200 meter speed to outkick Conceslas Cabrudo. That's really the, the problem here is he's up against a guy like the best thing for Evan Jager. And this is, you know, a little inappropriate is that Conceslas Cabrudo might not be at the 2020 Olympics because he's facing these defilement charges in Kenya. I think you take him out. He's got as good a shot. I mean, maybe El Bacali might be a bit ahead of him, but I think he's going to meddle with or without your coaching and, you know, <laughs> probably better without your coaching than staying with Jerry. I didn't say he'd win Olympic gold. I said he would meddle under my coaching. So instead of take Nike often offers these runners less money than they would get because they throw in the coaching they throw in the stuff. So he's getting towards the end of his career. If he needs to make a little bit more money, I'll do it. I'll even drop my, my normal rate. Uh, um, you know, if, if you want to be coached by me, normally you have to pay. I'll coach him for free. Um, speaking of let's run.com coaching, John, I, I've coached a young lady to a sub 20 minute, 5,000 meters. She was at 22 minutes when she signed up. Now she's at sub 20. It's pretty quick work. She's from your neck of the woods though, John. She wants to know which was going to happen first in 2021. Will I break 20 minutes myself or will Jonathan Galt get a girlfriend? I hope it's the latter. I think, didn't we already discuss this on the podcast? I, I don't know. I mean, I, her email. I mean, she, she's actually in her like mid thirties. I don't know if that's too old for you, John. I, I tried to, to be the matchmaker here. Yeah. Well, I, I'm going to blame 2020. It was COVID, you know, dating's difficult. I, I hope that we can get a vaccine soon, but let, you know, I don't think Robert's going to break. I mean, can he break 20 minutes in the 5k? Like, is that within your possibility at this point? How much you probably have to drop about fifteen pounds for that to happen, Roger? I'm trying to think. Yeah. Um, That's disgraceful. Now, you, you guys. I mean, we, we don't really work in a corporate environment, but I wonder if I violated like the normal athlete coach bonds because I, I, I sent her an email said, "Are you married or partnered?" And are you into younger guys? And she has not responded to that email. So I guess. You know, <laughs> oh as, my god. As a, as a college coach, I would never send that to an athlete, but I figured this was an email person that I'm coaching over email. So, anyway. Safe sports. She, please contact us. She listens to the podcast. She's, she's a fan of the show. So, anyways. John, speaking of your neck of the woods, well, I'm just sort of fascinated by this. And I was Googling, and then I found something else. Boston University opened up its basketball season, and they were wearing masks. And at the Armory, you have to wear masks, and they've set some – Facility records, I think, or high school records with people wearing masks. So it shows you can do it. But Boston University has mandated all athletes have to do it. So does that apply to their cross-country team if they go to meets outdoors? I would assume if it applies to all athletes, it applies to them. But I haven't really been following. I am pretty plugged into the local sports team, but I'm not a huge follower of Boston University cross-country, I'm afraid. So I don't know what the restrictions are specifically. And also then I found this crazy article in New York Times, Boston high schools, soccer, they outlawed headers. If you touched the ball, you had to sanitize it. You couldn't like stand in walls and stuff. It was like completely different form of soccer. Yeah, I don't really care. Whatever. Like it's COVID stuff. But I feel like you guys are very hardcore in Boston, John. Yeah, the, uh, more restrictions than certainly I would say the South. Um or out west, I would guess, apart from California. But okay, enough COVID talk. Let's get to the let's get to the predictions. All right, are we not going to talk about Molly Seidel at all? 
I mean, the open secret, the biggest open secret in the entire running world that she's signing with Puma and they haven't announced it yet. What do you mean? It's already been. I mean, it's been on the message boards. I, I kind of, it's kind of, I think she's tra- basically just trolling people at this point on Instagram. She had like these pictures. She ta- tagged protos of the gram and it was her running in like Crocs or something like that. But like, I don't know. This is kind. Of, it kind of amuses me when it's been on the message board for weeks that she's signing with Puma, but they haven't announced anything yet. Like, yeah, we know it's happening. Yeah, people are way more into like who's running for who than like w- what we think is going to happen with some future track season. We even barely know it's going to take place. So I think any more athletes switching, changing, yeah, let's let's discuss it a bit more. Ben Drew's contract's up. Where do you think he's going to end up? Is he going to? You know, would you if you were a brand, would you sign Ben True, Malcolm Gladwell's favorite runner? Speaking of which, can we go to subscriber only content where I call you guys out for the five things you didn't call Malcolm Gladwell out? That would have been one. Maybe next week we'll do that. I'll criticize Malcolm. His favorite runner has been True, and well, I'll I'll get into the rest next week. I don't want to go off. You're going to criticize you just because his favorite. I would criticize him for having uh, a convicted EPO cheat as his phone background rather than let having. A Dartmouth cross country legend, three time Heps cross country champion, as his favorite runner. There's no shame in that. Ben True denied my guys, my full time runners, my guys that ran year round the rifle Heps championships. Jimmy Weiner, you should have kicked him in that Heps cross country. Uh, anyways. Oh, okay, here's a quick one. Who's got more upside, Ben True or Ryan Hill? Ryan Hill. Ryan Hill. Younger, he's made more teams, he has a better kick. World, world indoor medalist. Agreed, one hundred percent. I mean, that's not even debatable. One of them's thirty. One of them's thirty-five. You're gonna. But sign Ben, him. the one thing in Ben's favor, he has marathon potential. I don't really ever see Ryan Hill moving out to the marathon or doing anything there. I do think I'm interested to see what Ben could do in the marathon. Okay, speaking of marathon, Molly Seidel is going to go to. I said it right, John. Twenty twenty-one Seidel. Nice Molly book. Seidel. Molly Seidel is going to run it. Go to Puma. Okay, what shoe is she going to race in? Last time I checked, they don't have a super shoe. But did Saucony have a super shoe as well? So yeah, and then Dolphin Pro. That's what I mean. She ran. She made the t- trials in it, and she ran uh, two twenty five there in London in shitty weather. I forgot about it. she ran in London. Anyways, the Hanson group. I love the Hansons. They've been doing so much for the sport for twenty plus years. They had a tweet out yesterday saying like it's going to be a tough year, and the, and the, they want us to keep supporting runners. There's just not enough support for so many worthy candidates. I was thinking, is that really true? Think about how many teams we have now. We're going to have Puma, Reebok, Boston, Reebok, Adidas, Reebok, Hoka, NEZ, Elite. What's, what's Reebok, Adidas, Reebok? What? What's that? You said Reebok, Boston, and then you just said Reebok and Adidas a bunch of times. That's not an actual team. There's a Chris Fox Reebok Boston Track Club, which isn't actually in Boston. And there's the Adidas Boston Track Club, which is the BAA team or something. Or the, it's just called the both- BAA High Performance Team, yeah. So and then you've got the Bowerman Track Club, uh, Zombie NOP, OTC Elite, On Athletics Club, yeah. On Athletics Club. I forgot about them. I mean, Hanson's Brooks, obviously the original team. Hoka NAZ Elite. We don't have NJMY anymore. That's splintered off. I mean, well, technically, I think there is a corpse of NJMY, which is like two athletes with Gagliano, but they don't have a sponsor. And then you're not even getting into these other ones. Roots Running, Ten Men Elite. There's a bunch of clubs in the East Coast. So anyways, I'm not saying it's too many, but I'm just saying there are a lot of teams. But I'm glad that Miss Saito is getting a new deal. But I would like to go into our 2021 prediction. Kyle, we didn't – what about Kyle Berber retiring? 
do you have something you want to say about that? I, I think, I mean, I, I expect Kyle to, I hope he stays in the sport of running. I think we need more Kyle Mobers. He loves running. He's excited about sharing about that, his love with the sport. I think he connects with a lot of younger fans. He's pretty funny on Twitter. He's a good guy. You know, I've always had good interactions with Kyle in person. One of my biggest regrets was uh, I came one second shy of beating him at the 2012 Wisconsin Adidas Invitational, and I couldn't claim his scalp uh, on my mantle. That that that's always that's always been a regret. But uh, no, I, I he was. I think the mate he made the most of his career. I mean, he didn't accomplish what he wanted to accomplish, but I think in terms of spreading the joy of the sport. That sort of thing. I think he did a really good job of that. Okay. I want to apologize to the international viewers because we have not been telling people who we're talking about. Like most people probably in England don't know who Kyle Merber is. They don't, they may not even know who Molly Seidel is. It kind of bothers me. Like when you read an article and they mention some random Kenyan or Ethiopian name on lunch run, I always try to describe like world bronze medalist or something. So people have an idea who they are. Kyle Merber went to Columbia university. His, he's made two U S finals, I think in the 1500 best showing was sixth. He was one of like five or six guys with the Olympic standard in 2016. So he, you know, had a decent chance of making the Olympic team, but he has retired from his hook in a New Jersey, New York track club. Um, so that's the thing there. One thing on the message board, there was a thread about his retirement because he did have a big Twitter following very following, funny on, on Twitter was, you know, and I said, I just talked about his career on there. And I said, you know, to me, it's kind of amazing. He ran as fast as he did. Like, he never made a, team, a, a U.S. team. Um, 2015 World Race, DMR World Record, 1,200 leg. Don't forget about that, Robert. Yeah. But I said, look, if you look at the elite U.S. guys, and he was competing in a very you know competitive era with, with the likes of Leo Manzano and Centrowitz and, you know, Robbie Blank- Andrews, Robbie Andrews, Blankenship, et cetera. And I'm like, look, you know, at some level, he kind of, some he did remind me a little bit of Steve Holman in the sense of he was much better at running fast in these championship races. So I was like, maybe this is something with the coaching with gags. You know, he, they're better at producing time trials than they are championship 1500 meter runners. But then I, I looked at their credentials and I was like, look, he shouldn't be out kicking these guys in, in championship races. I mean, the, the cream of the crop in the 1500, the really good guys, the weedings of the world, the Andrews of the world, the centers of the world. They're amazing. They're either much faster than, than than Kyle. They all have those guys have you know, Central it's one forty four eight hundred. Weeding one forty four eight hundred. Merber's only a one forty seven eight hundred guy. And then if you go to the endurance side, look at Matthew Centrowitz. He's a thirteen flat guy. Even Andrew Weeding, who you view as not a good endurance guy, he was like seventy fifth in NCAA cross running right with my guy Cornell, who was a twenty nine flat guy. Now, Merber was like a little bit worse than that endurance. He was 98th at NCAA cross twice. So he doesn't have the endurance of those guys. He doesn't have the speed. So he's not going to be beating them. So I, I think he had a good career. 335 is about 334. 335 is, is a very good accomplishment for him. But, you know, I, I don't think it should be used as a negative that he didn't make a U.S. team. No, absolutely not. Yeah, and point of order also, like there's a thread, Molly Seidel dropped by Saucony. Molly Seidel moved up in stratospheres and what she's going to get paid. I assume Saucony offered her some money. She felt it wasn't enough, and she's going to get more from Puma. When you're dropped, it's like we're, we're not offering you a contract. So I assume in this instance, essentially Kyle Marber got dropped by Hoka. You know, they're like, look, your contract up. It was probably to go through the Olympic year. And with the Olympics postponed, they're like, yeah, you know, good luck, Kyle, but we're not going to extend you this year. Well, if you read his Instagram post as well, he's sort of, I think mentally he's a little checked out. Like he's been, 
I think the fire isn't burning quite as hot, and he, you know, it's obviously looking at who he's going to have to beat. He would have to get in the best shape of his career, and now he's in his 30s and he's got to beat a lot of these people. It's just, you know, making an Olympic team was not feasible for him at this point. But I don't know. I look, I, I'm a fan of Kyle. I think he made, you know, he gave it his best shot. And there are a lot of injuries in there. I think that's one of the issues is whenever he get in really good shape, suddenly it seemed like he was hit by an injury and that would put him behind the eight ball. And that's just tough when you're not like a super, super talent like Centro or Robbie Andrews. Those guys can come back from injuries and still make the team. If you're Kyle Merber, you need everything to go perfect. And I just don't think it ever did for him. But well, right. Some of those message board discussions on these sponsorship deals, it's fake news. It's really the, the, a more accurate statement should be why did Molly Seidel drop stocking? I mean, you know, she got an offer from them for several hundred thousand dollars per year, according to the message board, turned it down. It's moving on to Puma. So good for her. But uh, you know, he, we, we, they shouldn't, people shouldn't be bashing Saucony, the one team, what the one shoe that actually was sponsoring her, you know, initially. Okay, guys, we promised it before the Jeff Bernays. We have to get to our 2021 predictions. I think these mainly should be Olympic predictions. So big question. First and foremost, Will the Olympics be held? Jonathan. Yes. I'm about 90% sure that this is going to happen. Don't know if there'll be fans, but it's going to happen. Yes, for sure. Despite the lockdowns in the UK right now, I 100% agree too. We have, we have the vaccine. There's no reason why there shouldn't be an Olympics. But in terms of predictions, I mean, I don't know. There's so many options where to begin. I guess we should, in my mind, we should start with one of the U.S.'s biggest stars from a distance standpoint. Shelby Houlihan, the American record holder. At fifteen hundred and five thousand, what event will she run, John? Maybe I should say, what event should she run? What event will she run, and will she medal? She should run the five. Sorry, she should run the fifteen hundred. She will run the fifteen hundred, and she will medal in the fifteen hundred. I'm. I think to do this, I think I know that she's likes her twenty thirteen victory twos, but. I think she needs to use the vape, the dragonflies and give herself every advantage. But I do think she will medal in that event and uh, finally break through. Walden, do you agree with that? False. I, I can't believe I thought this, but I just it was very clear to me. I'm like, wow, she should run the five k. She should wear the dragonflies and she will medal. She tried the fifteen hundred last time, John, and didn't medal despite running really fast. So why why is she going to be better than everybody else this time? I don't say she's going to be better than everyone else. She, I view that I will take the opposite approach. She was very close to meddling. She ran 354 in the World Championship final. She ran amazing. Usually that's worth a medal. And I think she's she could be even better in 2021 than she was in 2019. So, I mean, she certainly was in the 5K last year. So I think she doesn't need to be better than everyone. But I think she's very, very good. She came close and she's going to finally break through and get that medal. I have a slightly different take. I don't like the five. Malcolm Gladwell calls the 5,000 the best event in track and field. No, I don't like the 5,000. I'd like to see her run the 1,500. But I think from a medal standpoint, she should run the 5,000. That's her best shot. She cannot beat Hassan and Kip Yegon. So she's running for one medal there. And the 5,000, I don't think she can beat O'Berry and G'day. But these people aren't exactly the most consistent runners in history. So it was really watered down last time. Oh, be- hold on, hold on. Hold on. That is some slander on Obiri's name. She's a silver medalist in 2016. She was the world champion in 2017 and 2019. She is a very clutch championship performer. I think that's ridiculous to say she's not consistent. 
Didn't she pass out in some Diamond League or something this year? I forgot. She had a- She won the Diamond League this year. Sifan Hassan dropped out, but she won that Monaco race. And she's the World Cross Country Champion to boot. So I just think to say that she's not consistent is pretty... That's fake news. I'm just saying, Hassan and Kip Yegon are basically a step above. And then you've got people like Laura Muir who aren't that far behind. And, you know, you guys remember who the bronze medalist was? Gudaf Segei. 354.38. She's younger than Shelby Houlihan. She's only 23 years of age. So if she gets it going, good luck there. She can run another 355, 354, and, and, and get beat again. But I think she ultimately, if she's smart, she will double. That is the way to go. Her heart is in the 5,000. And the 5,000 is first at the Olympics. It's not going to interrupt anything. It's going to give her two chances. You run the 5,000 prelim. Then you come back. And on the morning of the 5,000 final, you just run a 1,500 prelim. It'll be good. It'll keep her loose. It will not be good. Your your argument is that running a 1,500 prelim on the morning of the Olympic final is better for her. It increases her chances of meddling than if she had not run a 1,500 prelim. Yes, it increases her chances of meddling overall for the Olympics because she'll be in two events and not one. It'll slightly probably decrease her chances for the 5,000 final. But it keeps her busy. She doesn't have to preoccupy about the race. I had a runner at Cornell named my man by the name of Barry Kahn. He's got a very successful company right now. He was kind of the nervous nature guy. So we entered him in the 1500 just to give him something to do in the first day. Didn't think he'd make the final. And he didn't. So she runs the fifteen hundred, the five thousand, uh, the fifteen hundred prelim. Comes back that night, runs the five thousand final. That's a bonus. She loves the fifteen hundred. That's her bread and butter. But she's got the five thousand. She might win a medal. Then it takes all the pressure off, and she can run like crazy in the fifteen hundred final. I I would be shocked if Jerry Schumacher thought it was a good idea for her to run two races on one day at the Olympics. They're like twelve hours apart. You think you think her jogging in the first round of the fifteen hundred is going to take a lot out of her, John? I don't think it helps, and I think she will have she will already she'll have the five thousand prelim and then the fifteen hundred prelim, and then I, I think it detracts running an Olympic final in the five k and then coming back a couple of days later and running the semis in the final in the fifteen hundred. I think that I don't think that helps her chances either. I know Shelby doubles a lot against the USA, but that's where she's I mean clearly the best, and I, she's not close to clearly the best in these international events. I just think I think she's better served focusing totally on one event. Okay, John, I don't know if you know anything about math or if you're very good at math. Do you, let's say you have a 60% chance of meddling in one event, but you got two events of, and you have a 40% chance of winning those. Do you do realize that two times 40% is better odds than one at 60%? You're pulling these m- numbers out of whole cloth. Where, where are you getting these numbers? They, they, you, you've just made them up, Robert. If I bother to actually figure out her betting odds for them, I guarantee you by running two events, she's got a better chance of meddling than running one and being slightly tired. Well, I don't think that's the way they operate. I'd, I'd be shocked if Jerry let her do both. Okay. Speaking of Houlihan, we had to do this. Who is your best hope? Or maybe we should exclude the 800. Best hope for a gold medal at the Rio Olympics in a distance event. Out, we're not talking Donovan Brazier. We can't count the 800. We're, we're talking about Americans only? Americans only. Oh. Yeah, for me, it's obviously Brazier and the men's eight. The women's event. Ajay. I guess obviously. I got to go with Ajay. 
Raven Rogers. I mean, Raven Rogers beat her. Now she's with Pete Julian. I don't think it's obvious, but I would also say RJ Wilson. I call RJ the favorite for gold in the 800 at this point. Right. But it's not as clear cut as people make it out to be because RJ didn't race last year. Raven's going to Pete. Pete's actually had great success. But I think after that, for me, it's Shelby Houlihan ahead of Jager. Uh, no, I, I'd say Emma Coburn. I mean, look, Chep Koech is great and she's the world record holder, but Houlihan needs to overcome, like Robert said, Kipyagon and Sifan Hassan, most likely in the 1500. And Coburn just needs Beatrice Chepkoa to screw up. Look, I I think, A, could get a little better, and Chepkoa gets, gets worse. And also, Chepkoa, this is a woman who, let's remember in 2017, forgot to run one of the the jumps in the race. Like, it's not like her, she has an amazing championship record. I know she won in 2019. I think Coba is the best chance at gold. It's not even close, John. Of course, her chances for. I mean, she's got one person. If Chip Kovac is injured, she's the favorite for gold. Hulihan's got to beat th- three women that are better than her in the 1500, and at least two in the 5000 that are better than her. So th- that's a really dumb take by Weldon. I would say Jager's got a better chance because his number one, the only guy that's unbeatable in his event, is could be in prison instead of being in the Olympics. So uh, bad take by Weldon there. Okay, we've got enough. Well, not enough. We're going to go back to the Americans, but I want to give international viewers some love. Will Mo Farah medal? A year ago, I felt very strongly that the answer was yes, but now I'm re- I'm really I feel like I'm still going to say yes, but it's so much harder now. Like you've got Kip Limo, you've got Ronex Kiprudo, you've got Yomiv Kajelcha, you've got Joshua Cheptegei. Like, I don't think he's being Cheptegei. I think if Kip Limo runs the 10K, it's going to be really effing hard to beat Kip Limo too. But look, Mo Farah, and he's, I know he's been out of the track for this. He'll been away for almost four years, but this is still a guy who won 10 straight global titles. Like this is one of the all time legends of the track. And I think he's still got something, to, something left in the tank. I'm going to say he medals, but I feel way less confident than I did a year ago. Well, if he can medal, that would be just a huge accomplishment. Like I want him in there. I want him fit, contending. But uh, yeah, how does he beat Caplimo and Cheptegei? Like, and who knows? Maybe Cam War. I mean, like, it would just be epic if he could pull off the gold. It'd be like bye bye Gibbers Lassie, bye bye Bikiwe. This is the goat. I mean, there's no question. So that would be exciting. What? What? With zero world records? Yes. No. If he beats the world record holder at this age, after everybody's written him off, 100% greatest distance track runner of all time, Mofar. Well, uh, yeah, saying greatest distance track. If you're limiting it to the track, you could already argue he's the GOAT. I mean, he's got way more gold medals than uh, Kele or Gebrselassie. Because Gebrselassie didn't bother to double because they had 10K heats. Okay, guys. I, I have to jump on a call. I want you guys to throw one more at me. But real question... Will Concessa Scipruto be in the Olympics competing at the Olympics? He is up for defilement, which is very serious, essentially statutory rape charges. Do you think he'll be in Tokyo? I mean, I think he will, but I don't really have any inside info on that one. Predictions are, John, just predictions. Okay, throw one at me, then I'll let you guys wrap this up. Will Jacob Ingebrigtsen medal? Yes. Very easy, yes. He's very good. You guys like my analysis? It's next level. 
Yeah, he ran. Well, here's my analysis. He ran 328 last year as a 19 year old. So, yeah, I think he's going to medal in the 15. What's the doubling situation between 15 and 5? Because this also comes back to Robert's simple math. So, it's very tough uh, because it, it's actually, it overlaps even more uh, because the events are closer. But as in the women's race, you have a prelim. The 1500 prelims on the morning of day five, the 5k final is on the, sorry, the 5k prelim is on the evening of day five. So it's just prelims and prelims. It's not final. But then you have three days in a row of racing after a rest day on day six. You've got the 1500 semi on day seven. You've got the 5k final on day eight. Then you have the 1500 final on day nine. I mean, I just don't think anyone in their right mind would run the 1500, the 5k final on day eight and then come back 24 hours later and run the 1500 final. That's virtually impossible. Okay, so doubling's out. So Robert's basic math does not apply in this situation, but he's going to medal in the 1500. But again, this is just so idiotic the way these schedules are set up. Like World Athletics, if you want to make the sport popular, you need to make stars. Mo Farah is the star because he was on TV for a week you know, in Britain. You want to have Britson going more than once you know, in these things. I think he's going to medal. I mean, look at the medalist last time. I bet you guys... I wonder if Jonathan can even I, – I know there's no chance in hell that Wilder can name all three 1,500 medalists from 2019 Worlds without looking it up on Wikipedia. Timothy Cherriot, Talfeet McClufey, Mustin Lewandowski, boom. Yes. I knew, well, Jonathan, you you impressed me yet again. But come on, McClufey, people aren't – do you think he's really going to do it again at yet another Olympics? I guess he always does find – Hey, this guy is Superman in the Olympic. Olympic year McClufey. The big question with I have with him is, is he going to be banned because of this uh, – you know, syringes in the gym bag situation. But Lewandowski, come on. I mean, I think Ingebrigtsen should be able to beat him. And you've got no other really good Kenyans with, with Manning going out. So I, I think that, you know, he will medal. And my bull, I, I want you guys to make two big bull predictions. My bull prediction on the men's side is as follows. Matthew Centrowitz, Jonathan seems to act like he's done nothing in the last four years. That is not true at all. What? Matthew- How? about that's no that's like you guys are the anti-centro guys on this podcast well, somebody was recently downplaying his accomplishments have people we were talking earlier about Kyle Merber you know he's a 1355 thousand guy Matthew Centrowitz has run 13 flat that was last year this guy's got 144 speed 13 flat speed this is like Alan Webb but he actually knows how when to peak and, and get it right so Matthew Centrowitz will medal at the Olympics that's my bold men's prediction for 2021 yeah, I mean, you guys Robert, this is a big – like, it, it, I just want to say, you were the guy who's saying Yared Nagus is a lock for the Olympic team next year. You essentially said Central – like, I thought you said last year Central wouldn't even make the team. What – like, did you just – did you look up the results of this 5K race from 2019 and then you realized his PR and that – what made you change your, your opinion on this one? I don't remember what I said last year, John. I'm just, I was, I was, I, I, I'm an open book. I don't, I, I'm not one of these old guys that looks into the past. I look forward. Centro, it's a new year. It's probably focused. Everywhere. I mean, the year off is going to help some people. I'm, I think I might have been the one who said his odds of making the Olympic team are pretty high. I should just disagree with Robert and say Centro is not going to make the Olympic team. But just with no track for a year, like that guy's got the ability to medal. I want him on the Olympic team, so I can't go there. But guys, maybe I can record a bold statement. I hate to leave the show mid-show, but I'm out of here. All right, Robert. I have a bold prediction also. An American will win a major marathon in 2021. And my rationale is as follows. 
We are going to see the most watered down full marathon season in history, assuming that we have full marathons. Like I get, I think I can, can I get like a John, we're going to have full marathons. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's assume that we do. Um, if we have full marathons, Americans going to win one because we're going to have not only six full marathon majors, but we're also going to have the Olympics where most of the, you know, the top three runners from each country are going to be at. That means you have seven potentially chances in what, like a three month period for an American to win a major. I think it's going to happen. John, don't, well, don't be, don't be stupid. I mean, I, I, you did make it. Your bold prediction last year was Elliot Kipchoge would lose the marathon. So congratulations to you, John. That was, that was correct. I mean, you're proven right, but, don't be stupid. I mean, I know it's watered down, but we don't even have any Americans capable of even contending for a major, except for Rob, and he's going to be in the damn Olympics. Rob could win the Olympics. I don't think he will, but I think he could. Sarah Hall. You not telling me that Sarah Hall could like win a depleted Tokyo Marathon? I think she could. No, she cannot. No, she cannot. She's a 222 marathoner, 221 marathoner. That doesn't win a major. So, John, if you, last time I remembered, only three... Kenyans and Africans can go to the Olympics. So there's going to be plenty of them to go around and still pick up these majors. 208, you know, Marty Hare, 208.59. That's not competitive in the majors, John. So put, put, you're assuming it's going to be a man. No, I'm not. What about Jordan Nisei? What if Jordan Nisei gets healthy? Which women are capable? I, I want you to name the names of Americans that are capable of even coming close to winning a major right now. Des Linden, Sarah Hole. Des Linden? No, 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 no. Des Linden's like 45 years old. No. <laughs> all right. How? First of all, how dare you? Second of all, she has won a major marathon and finished two seconds behind in another one. I know that one was ten years ago, but come on, you can't tell me that Des is incapable of winning a major. That's ludicrous. Okay, I don't. I mean, I, I put an asterisk next to her win and Yuki Kawauchi's win. I mean, I, what was the winning time? Two thirty-five. Okay, who's capable of winning a major marathon under if the winning time is under the following times: two twenty-five for the women and two. 06 for the men. Well, I just uh, first, okay, again, Sarah Hall, Des Linden, Jordan Nassay, that's three. I, I would like it more if we had sort of a Shalane Flanagan type. Mo- Molly Huddle, Emily Sisson, these people didn't. Uh, yeah, right. Make the team. <sighs> I don't know. I, look, this is why you asked me for a freaking bold prediction, man. This is bold. Leonard Correa, maybe he gets in, you know, drops some time. I, no, Leonard Correa. I mean, Leonard career is the only other guy I could think of. I mean, maybe because he could run like 205, 206. Like let's here's, here's my, here's, here's a scenario. Humor me. You get to New York. It's the final major of the year. It's really cold. It's really windy. A bunch of people like there's only three Africans in the men's elite field to begin with. And two of them, one of them ends up having a bad day. One of them gets injury or drops out. These fields are going to be watered down. I think it could happen. The problem with New York is there's plenty of time for the people to come back from the Olympics to New York. And if there's um, if New York only has three Africans in it, then I'm not calling it a major. And I'm going to blast New York. This is my whole point, though. Yeah. This is what we're going to have. Is There's going to be – then don't even forget that we got Valencia. They're going to get a bunch of people, too. Like, this is my whole point. The majors will be watered down. And so the chance is right for an American to win one. It is after 12 noon. It's like 12.07. I don't know if you've been drinking or not. You're only not allowed to drink till 12 noon, John. At least that's what I was always told growing up. So I heard five o'clock. It's a weekday, Rob. I don't know about what, what you learned growing up. I don't up. know how you could already be intoxicated after eight minutes of drinking. 
Hopefully you're not drinking on a Wednesday at 12 noon. Anyways, we've done Mo Farrell. We've done Inka Brinson. We've done Houlihan. We've done Capruto. Evan Jager, you and I both think he's going to medal, correct? We do, we do need to remember that Ethiopia on the men's side suddenly got good at the steeplechase, so it's not a lock. Well, I do think he's going to medal, but wait, you you said leave me oh, right. I, and join, you know, leave Jerry and join me and he'll medal. But if you're also thinking he's going to join, stay with Jerry and also medal, why would he leave? Well, because he can leave, he can be with me and then sign a, a bigger contract with another company. He doesn't have to take a lowball offer from Nike. So it wouldn't, I, I don't know. Him meddling again is not going to be a, how many times has he medal? Has he medaled twice now in the Olympics? Once the Olympics, once at Worlds. All right. How about this, Robert? Men's 100 meters. Who's the champ? Noah Lyles? I think I'd pick Lyles too. But I think, I mean, Bromel, DeGrasse, and Lyles, I think all three of those guys could win. I think it'll be interesting. Like, the last three Olympics, we had a very heavy, heavy favorite for gold. I guess 2012 between Blake and Bolt, there was a little bit of a doubt. But I don't know. It'll be interesting if maybe one of these guys does become a heavy favorite by Tokyo. But I think it's fun that we have a little uncertainty there. Okay, along those lines, who will be the U.S. Tra- biggest track star, men and women, not counting just as the spinners involved? Who's going to be the biggest star of the games on the men's side? I think, I mean, I was thinking, who could, you know, Lyles, if he goes to 1 200, he could be the biggest star. What about 400 hurdle guy? 400 hurdle guy, you mean Rye Benjamin? Yeah, if he sets a world record. It's a world record. I don't, th- I just don't think, I, I mean, I think Warholm's better. So, and he's in the 400 hurdles. I mean, maybe because he gets the world record. And he's not also – Warholm's a much bigger personality too. I think he's just totally overshadowed. Like, Rye Benjamin's not a huge personality. I think the star of the games – yeah, it's probably Noah Lyles. Big personality, has a chance to win double gold. Like, he he could very well be the star of the entire Olympics uh, in track and field, not just from American perspective. On the women's side, you know – I mean, look, if Allison Felix, I don't think she's going to make the Olympics. Maybe she lucks into a relay spot or something. You don't think she makes the Olympics? Of course she's going to be on some relay. They've got so many relay spots. It's NBC. Oh, she'll probably make the mixed agenda four by four. I know. And here's the thing: NBC will make her the star of the Olympics. They'll just play her up, and they'll be like, "Look at all the gold medals she's won. She's going to break the record." Like, and that's going to piss me off because, like, I'm sorry, we shouldn't be make. Like, I know Allison Felix is a legend. She's done a ton in her career, but it's. I'm not going to be excited about someone winning mixed gender gold in the four by four. Like let's make an actual star out of, you know, someone who's the best in the world or even close to the best in the world in their event. Okay. So who will be the biggest U S star not named Allison Felix? I think Shikari Richardson could be the answer here. Um, I mean, Sydney McLaughlin. Wait, did you steal my notes, John? I, I had written Shikari. She broke 11 this year again. No one really noticed it because it was during COVID, but she, she could be the world's fastest woman if she wins that 100. Jamaicans are getting up there in age. I mean, the other thing is obviously Sydney Laughlin and Delilah Muhammad. But the problem is we don't know which one of them is going to win that race. And the other problem is neither one of them raced at all this year. So we don't really know what's going on there. I thought that was a little bit surprising. So I would think that the media is going to try to play up Sydney as the star. If she wins, she'll probably be the bigger star than she carry just because she's got, already got a bit more of a brand name coming into the Olympics. But Shikari Richardson is a bigger personality than Sydney McLaughlin. Sydney McLaughlin is like an Allison Felix type. She's very nice in interviews. She knows how to say the right things. But Shikari Richardson, I remember after she broke uh, 11, she ran like 10, what, 1075 in NCAAs in 2019. She was given all these, you know, she's a very exciting person to to follow and to talk to. And, uh, you know, she's 
I don't know. I just think she's a more compelling personality from what I've seen of the two. So she could be, you know, a little Noah Lyles light on the women's side. Hmm. Okay. And last, at the last Olympics, there were seven Americans that medaled in the 800 on up. I'm going to name them for you because you could probably name them, but I imagine all of our listeners could not. Clayton Murphy. Remember him? I totally forgot about that guy. He medaled Matthew Sentowitz, Paul Chalimo, Evan Jager, Galen Rupp, Jenny Simpson, and Emma Coburn. How many medals will you get this time? Well, I look at that list. I think Jager and Coburn probably medal again. I don't know about the other five. Um, but I think Brazier medals. I think RJ Wilson and Raven Rogers, you've got maybe like one and a half medals from that combination. Bryce Hopple could medal. I'm just trying to think of other... There's there's going to be some random person who emerges or who takes a leap up who's going to be in contention. But let me let me go... Th- okay, so Brazier's one, Coburn's two. I'll give one and a half from Wilson and Rogers. So that's three and a half. I'll get Jager, that's four and a half. And I'll say we find half a medal from somewhere else. Oh, I didn't even mention Houlihan. So one of them could get hurt though. I'll, I'll say five, five American medals in the, in the distance mid the events. Yeah. I had it at six because I, I could get to seven. I've got Brazier. Then I said Jager or Rupp, Houlihan, Coburn, Wilson, Rogers. And then if Central medals it back to seven again. So I, I'm saying six. I, I, I think a good over under would be around five and a half, six range. So that should be interesting. But other than the Olympics, John, we have other things to look forward to. I'm obviously excited about the Jeff Burns interview, which is coming up right now. But other than that, we have the Olympic trials, hopefully at a Hayward Field with fans. They really need to have the fans there. NCAAs will also be at Hayward Field. We have two NCAA cross-country championships, hopefully in 2021. So I listed Monaco Diamond League because that was supposed to be my big trip last summer. I was going to go to the Euro, Euro 2020 final in Wembley. And then two days before, I was going to go to Monaco and go to that meet. I've never gone. That's a bucket list meet for me. I'm hoping by this summer, it's the same schedule. It's Monaco on the Friday and then Euro 2020 on the on the Sunday. I'm hoping to knock out that. That would be a fun trip for me. I also want to see Eli Kipchoge. I'm getting very excited. I think he's going to win the Olympic marathon gold. That's not really a bold prediction, but... He, tw- he had an Instagram post where it was just him getting ready for a workout and it said, it's go time. Like, I'm ready to Kip Joge to come out. I've been watch- re-watching The Last Dance, Robert, and just MJ and all his, you know, slights and kicking people's ass. I think that's going to be Kip Joge in 2021. He's going to have a comeback, comeback tour and win the Olympics. And then I want to see, hopefully they can do this in Valencia or somewhere in the fall. Can we get the half marathon to end all half marathons? Kibwat Kandier, Ronex Kiprudo, Jacob Kiplimo and Jeffrey Camoror back to try to take his world record back. Can we get all of them in a race this fall? I think that would be fun. That's cool, John. Put it in the rich billionaire's mind now so he can start lining them up before the Olympics. Because I think sometimes people lose their motivation. Like they win the Olympics and they get their money and they're not excited to keep motivating. If they already have that goal now, so they're mentally they're preparing to keep racing after the Olympics. I don't even know. You think So you think Camoror is going to be in the Olympics? Yeah. In the 10K. Yeah. I don't know, man. Um, when was the last time he ran? Did he even run the world championships? In tw- he didn't run it in 2019. Did he run it in 2017? He did. He got sixth. I mean, maybe he... I, I, I'm just not sure if he's going to do the 10K at the Olympics or not. I don't think he has a great chance to medal. 
I'm getting excited as we think about it now. And to me, one of the biggest events is one that they're probably trying to get rid of. The men's 10,000 on the opening weekend. The men's 10,000 is first. The women have the 5,000 first. The drama. We're going to wait and wait and wait. And we're going to have Cheptegei, Caplimo, Farah, all these people. We're not. It's not going to be watered down because they're coming back tired from the 5,000 or they don't bother to double back. You're going to have the Primo lineup building up the tension. Lap after lap, minute after minute, and then we'll oh, see. You're already, you're already getting me excited. Just sit, sitting in the new Olympic Stadium, uh, maybe a, a beer in hand as we watch that thing up in – that's going to be awesome. I really hope there are fans for that because that would be a great atmosphere. Salazar back in the stands coaching his protege, Mel Farah. Farah pulls it off, and I have to walk out of the stadium and in my journalism career. Oh, oh okay. His, his – Bold prediction, or this isn't a bold prediction, this is just a question, Robert. Will Alberto Salazar's ban be overturned by the Court of Arbitration for Sport? No, it will not. But my bold prediction is that Christian Coleman will be at the Olympics. I just thought about this and will win the Olympic 100 meter gold. I think they targeted him. I think you've got a case that it was not a case of equal justice. They specifically told him not to call. That seems like you're, you're, you're trying to almost entrap somebody to catch them. I think if he's got a good lawyer, uh, signs enough, pays him enough money, they can make that argument and win that out. Salazar, while he violated technicality, I'm not really happy with the ban. Um, I, I think he's gone. Oh, I, I don't think Coleman's getting clear. I just look, sorry. The dude went shopping. He went Christmas shopping and went to Chipotle during his one hour window. And they have the receipts to prove it. I, I just. I don't see how that guy gets gets cleared. I don't think he's a doper, but I don't think he'll be at the Olympics. So while we're excited for the Olympics, it may not be a level playing field because of these shoes. It's going to be a big story all, all year long. And in this next segment with Jeff Burns, we're finally actually going to get the facts. I've been going off in shoes for years now, but without the facts. So stay tuned. Interview Jonathan Galt and I with Jeff Burns. I'm sure it's going to be amazing. Till next week. Bye-bye. All right, now we are joined by a special guest. I'm so pumped by this. I've been saying I was going to have this person on the podcast for the last six months, and I'm following, finally following through on a promise, which Jonathan Gold says I never do. On the podcast now is Jeff Burns. He is a he has his PhD in kinesiology. He's, he's a postdoc research fellow at the Michigan Performance Research Lab. He also went to University of Michigan for undergrad, and where he ran in Michigan for three years. After graduation, he has moved to the Ultra World, where he was the 2016 U.S. National Champion in the 100K. He's twice finished fifth in the world at the 100K. But I'm having him on the show because he is an expert on these super shoes. He's been doing research into the super shoes. He's been tweeting about the super shoes. He even gave up his sponsorship contract in part because of the super shoes. Now on the podcast, Let's Run Podcast, is Let's Run.com VIP subscriber, Jeff Burns. Jeff. It's an honor to have you on. It is absolutely an honor to be here. Really excited. Yeah, Jeff, actually, before we get into the shoe stuff, you mentioned that you were a child raised in a Let's Run.com household. I was wondering, could you share the story you just shared for us off air? Yeah. So when I, growing up, this is, you know, I, I've been, I've been immersed and reared within the Let's Run community. My dad, my dad is, you know, very, from, from day one, he's been an avid reader of the boards and the sites and it, you know, I'd grow up in the days of, you know, early days of like dial up internet, I'd, you know, when I was a teenager 
picking up the phone to make a call and you hear the, you know, busy, busy signal. And it's like, mom, mom, phone's busy again. Jeff, your, your father's on letsrun.com again. <laughs> so, so I grew up with, you know, a lot of phone calls away because dad had to check what was going on on the boards. And, you know, I, I then carried that into, I, I never read die stat or anything like that as a high schooler. It was, I, w- I went straight to the hard stuff, <laughs> straight, straight to let's run. <laughs> so, yeah. That's so good. And now it's like father, like son. Now you're indeed. And then I will say really quick, I have, I have so much gratitude for what you guys do. Um, you know, and I, I know like you get a lot of flack and stuff for the boards, but there's so much good stuff on there um, that help that's helped me in my running career and trajectory, whether it's, you know, learning about training methods from stuff that, you know, Canova and, you know, Tin Man and all of these other guys have, have written, you know, back, you know, a lot back in the days, keeping up on the news, but also injury stuff. And I mean, it's such a good barometer of the running community and what matters to everybody. Um, and I still tap into it. It's, it's really important for me as a researcher, as well as an athlete to like have that resource to see what's important to, to the running community. So thank you. Well, let's, let's go to the shoes now. Enough self, enough. That was very <laughs> nice. Thank you. Yeah. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm wondering, uh, you sent me a 20 minute interview you did with Ross Tucker, the sports scientist that I was listening to to get ready f- for this interview. And sort of at the end of that, you were kind of, the way you were talking about the shoes is, you know, it's interesting for the fans and the spectators. It was almost like you're giddy that there's a shoe controversy. Yet, you know, you're the person, when you signed up for your Let's Run.com membership, I said, hey, man, thanks for signing up. Let me send you the 159.40 shirt. And you're like, nah, no thanks. I don't want to wear that. And now that we have the 159.40 asterisk shirt, I'll be sending you that actually later this week. I think we're getting them in three days. But at a general sense, are you a fan of the super shoes, a critic of the super shoes, or is that not a good question? No, that's a great question. And I would say I'm, I'm so, I'm torn by them. Um, I like 50% of me loves them and 50% of me hates them. Um, and then like, you know, actually, I'm not even going to say that, like, it's not even black and white. There's just an enormous spectrum. There are so many so many good and exciting things about them, but also like a lot of sad things that we kind of let go with the sport. And so, I mean, really quick to rattle off some of those like high level pros and cons, you know, obviously cutting our ties with past performances really hurts because that's something that kind of, you, you know, it's what makes running very distinct from certainly other endurance sports, but other even, you know, really any sport in general, like no other endurance sport really has that kind of thread that connects me to, you know, college Jeff, who is, you know, a shell of me and, you know, maybe future Jeff, who's much stronger than me, hopefully. Um, And, you know, even with that, like, we have in Ann Arbor, you know, we have these like famous, you know, workouts and routes like the ARB or Harvard or like the Barton Tempo, that we know the leaderboards of, you know, from everybody from like, Donikowski and Brian Deemer and Greg Meyer, you know, to Willis and Brannon and like what all of these guys have run. Yeah. So it's like running has this thread that's, it's like immortal because we're connected to performances. There's both internal and external validity to what we do. And that's one of the things that's like a bummer about these shoes is they break that. Like they, they kind of have that step change where all of a sudden like our performances now shift and it's sad. And, but I also recognize like, I'm not a, I'm not a Luddite in that I'd like 
things evolve. Like, you know, this running has evolved. We've just been lucky kind of that it's been stagnant for like 40 years. Um, but so it, so things change. And, and the, the other fun side of that is that like, A, the shoes are like, as much as like, I kind of wish they weren't in, in competition, they're really fun to run in. Like that, that's like on, on one level, they are like really interesting. The second level is, you know, it's better, better foams. Like I don't, I'm not averse to like technology advancements. We want better materials in our shoes. I just, I just hedge on not wanting that clock to have such an enormous component due entirely to engineering. Um, so that's one, you know, the advancements in, in the foams is great. I think there is something to be said of, of these protecting the legs a little bit better. And that's, that actually like then spirals into something of um, whether or not that's good or bad. Cause I think it's going to fundamentally change the dynamics of racing, but it could also change the, the rate of turnover. We could see people no longer doing marathons twice a year. We could see four a year um, because you really, that's, that's, we haven't had good laboratory data on this yet, but it's, there's like overwhelming anecdotal <laughs> evidence. I can, I can attest to it myself, but also things I've heard from other people. And also the way races play out now with these huge negative splits, they look more like 10,000 meter races on the track. You don't trash your legs. So I think that could, it could fundamentally change the sport in an interesting way. And, and it also, I think really disrupts the sport that in a, in a way that it needed disrupting from a sponsorship standpoint. So, so there's a lot of good to come out of the shoes. Um, but it also, like I said, it kind of, fu- it, it cuts at that fundamental appeal of running a little bit, the, the pure physiology of it. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm torn. I, I, I love it and I hate it. And, but the overarching thing that I think is so cool about it is that because it's so controversial, and we had major news outlets covering this, whether it's the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, BBC, running so many stories about this controversy. That means that marathoning and running resonates with the mass public. And to me, that's a huge wake up call to world athletics. Like, guys, the world cares about this sport. Like, there isn't a fundamental appeal that, like, they understand that shoes changing performances is shocking. And so that means that they have a fundamental interest in connection to this sport. I think it's a huge signal that there's an enormous untapped market for the sport, that the broader public is, is has an appetite for, you know, foot racing. Um, and so I think that's really exciting to see, to see the, the excitement that, that, that this controversy itself has caused. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, I'm a little bit like you, like on a personal level, I'm not opposed to, although I've never worn a, a super shoe, I guess. I mean, I've worn a carbon shoe, but I don't think I've worn anything with a special foam. It might be cool, you know, to run in. But what really bothered me was, A, the way it was, the way they were brought out in 2016, handed to a select few of athletes. Yeah. In my mind, there will always be an asterisk next to Galen Rupp's bronze medal because he had Absolutely. the shoes in third place and the fourth place person with the same sponsor did not have them. Um, so anyways. Yeah. And, and I think that actually gets to something that, um, I don't know, we can talk about it later, but those, tra- it, it makes, I've had, I've had like, it's been fascinating going back and looking at marathon results 
from 2016 and 2017, before this was like, we, before we really viscerally understood the effects of this, and especially in 2016, when we didn't even know these were popping up in races, um, you know, we look at like Galen Rupp, he's never run a marathon, not in these shoes. We don't know what, like, I mean, he's run 206 in these shoes, which is like, not that great. <laughs> um, I mean, it's better than, you know, any other American has done, but like, so then you go back and look at him and then look at like Jordan Hesse, who we thought was this like wonderkin of marathoning. All of her marathons have similarly been in this and some of her best results have been when they weren't widely available to everyone else. And then even people like, uh, like Sandre Mohn is a, is a great example. Like he's this dude that we think we thought of, you know, when he came out, you know, in, I think it was 2017 and just like, you know, crushed, uh, I think was it Fukuoka was like his big run. You go back and look at it. And it's like, oh my gosh, like, okay, he ran 206, but it was in the vapor flies. Like he was before the vapor flies, he was like a 209 marathoner. And we, we thought at the time we're like, oh, he goes and lives in Kenya and he trains with Canova and he like totally changed his life and he became this like superstar marathoner. Now I'm like, he maybe got a little bit better when he did that, but it's gotta be the shoes. <laughs> so I, it, I will defend Galen Rupp a little bit. I mean, he, everybody had access to the shoes this last February and he destroyed everybody. So yeah. even me, not a Rupp fan will say that I think he's pretty damn good with or without the shoes. He is. I'm, I'm not saying he's not the best American marathoner. I'm just saying he's not like, uh, He's he's not uh, he's not as close to world class as maybe we think. So, so the the question I have is, and I've been saying that if, if there is no answer to this, we should figure it out. Is so clearly the shoes come out in 2016, circulate kind of 2017 they're announced, 2018 or 20 I don't know when you'd say they're widely when are the, when when is everybody starts wearing them probably 2019 I'd say. But, 2017, I think a lot of Nike, good Nike athletes had access to them. But 20, 2019, yeah, it was definitely the year where every single person on the starting line of a marathon who like could, you know, could buy them. That's where you saw the flood of time. But yeah. still a lot of Adidas athletes probably aren't allowed to wear them and stuff like that. But the, the question I have for you, Jeff, is, I mean, if you look at this year, Valencia, three of the four winners were in Adidas shoes. Mm-hmm. Go back to the U.S. Olympic marathon trials. A woman wearing hokas won the race. Um, so, do do we have a level playing field now? You know, is this super shoes from these other companies? I think, and you said there's super shoes similar to Nikes that are made from Adidas now. New Balance, Saucony, Brooks. Um, you said the Hoka shoes not really the same, but do, do we? Are the other shoes equal to Nike now, or do we not know that? Um, it's a good question. And I, I would, I will hedge with a very simple answer. And then we can maybe talk about how to break this down. I would think that we're close, but I still, if I had to bet money on it, they're not quite even with Nike yet. Um, I think we have a lot of shoes that are substantially better than old racing flats. I don't know as they are as good as the vapor fly. Um, Okay. Yeah, let me interrupt real quick because I was thinking, but wait, the, and I'll say it really quick before that, like we don't, we don't have data on that and we can talk in a second about that. So that's, that's just purely my own. I've, I've run in, I've run in the Adidas ones, but like, and the others just looking at material properties and characteristics of the shoe. It, it makes it hard to see how they're as good as the Nike, but um, yeah. So, sorry. 
Yeah, no, I, I, I was the one interrupting you, but I was kind of assuming, oh, Adidas might be better because they had these, you know, three winners and, you know, yeah. 75%. But then I was thinking, well, maybe these guys were just getting beat before because they weren't even close to them. But I actually, when I was preparing for this interview, I, I, I forgot in the, in the beginning of the year, maybe it was the end of last year, you did a video for the Wall Street Journal. You know, it wasn't really a, a big scientific thing for the for the lab, but you had a guy run on the treadmill, your partner, um, Juris Silenix, and he was running six-minute pace and five-minute pace on this treadmill, some in the Vaporfly and some in the Adidas shoes, and his heart rate was five beats per minute lower on the, on the Nike shoes. So to me, I don't know how I forgot that. It seems like the Nike shoe clearly is better. Well, so that was, I mean, that was the Adidas Adios boost, the like the old world record shoe. So the Nike, I mean, that that's like, we have lots of scientific data that shows like, yeah, the Vaporflies are clearly better than that. And I think most of the super shoes that are out now would beat that Adidas Adios boost um, shoe for sure. Oh, okay. It wasn't the new one. It's not the new Adidas shoe. No, 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 no. Because this was, this was, that was, this was long before the, that new Adidas shoe had even, I think, been like developed, like conceptualized by Adidas. That was actually, this was one of the things that just blew my mind through the development of all of this is how slow other companies were to do anything about it. Um, Because Nike didn't, I mean, they were very coy in 2016 when they had their athletes racing in prototypes, but when they released the shoe, like the recipe was laid bare. It was not complicated. They had patents on the shape of the plate, but most of it you could replicate pretty easily. Um, and it took companies like forever <laughs> to, to do anything, which which was like, like scratching your eyes. But no, th- that was in the Adidas shoe. And, and so any of the super shoes that we have now would likely outperform that one. And this is what gets tricky with these that that's going to be frustrating for a lot of athletes when they're trying to think like, which shoe do I buy? Which super shoe do I buy? Like most of these shoes are going to feel much better than your old racing flats. You are going to notice like slightly lower efforts, whether it's actually measuring your heart rate or just going by, you know, your perception of effort at a pace, like they will feel faster, but then, you know, deter like, cause three, like a 3% economy benefits enormously noticeable. Um, but now distinguishing between three and 4% or between four and 5%, that's, that's a lot trickier um, to do with crude measurements. And that's where I think we're operating in the differences between these. And the bummer there is like, yes, it's a much more level playing field now, but it's still like, you know, still talking 1% economy differences or maybe 2%, that's still enormous amounts of time um, that I certainly as an athlete, I, I have no interest in leaving that on the table. Um, yeah. So it's something to consider. Uh, but so with, with these shoes back to the original question, is it a level playing field? You know, I look at, when we look at these shoes, I think there are a couple key things mechanically to look at. Um, the first one is assuming all other things are equal, you know, you can look at the weight because that's one thing that we just know, mechanically speaking, that's just math, that's physics. Um, the weight of the shoe, if, you know, all our things being equal is important. A hundred grams, you know, kind of our, our rule of thumb in, in mechanics, our hundred grams on your shoes is about a 1% economy um, change. So like the Adidas shoes, 
I believe, I think the Adidas and Softney shoes are about 50 grams heavier than the Vaporfly. I'd have to go back and check that number specifically. Um, but right there, you're already like putting yourself at a, a little, you know, <laughs> maybe half a percent uh, disadvantage or something. Um, now, could you recover that with like a better, better construction in the shoe? That's, that's where then you look at the material properties. So this is the other really important thing is what, what is that foam that they are using? Because this is what the Vaporfly showed us that was really, uh, again, I, so I grew up working in a shoe store, in a running shoe store. That was my teenage job and through part of college as well. Um, so I was immersed in shoes. And then I studied engineering, biomedical engineering, both undergrad and masters at Michigan. And it's like, to me, look, I always looked at foams and it was just like this, like no brainer of like, why can you not develop more efficient foams? Like they are, like we know EVA, you know, basically gives back about 60% of the energy. Um, and then Boost, you know, Boost supposedly rocked the world when it had 70%, around 70%, a little higher than that. Um, and that, that actually is noticeably different when you run in a, a Boost shoe but it was denser. So, so like that to me, that was always, I, I, you know, I never got into material science, like certainly not professionally. So I didn't know the, the actual complexities of why, why this was not happening in the running world, but it always seemed like there's an enormous space to be had there. And sure enough, that's really the kind of the thing that allowed the vapor fly to blow up is this PBAX foam. That's like high 80% in efficiency. That's crazy. When you think about a hundred percent, that's a perfect spring. So this is now nearing perfection in terms of energy loss underneath your foot. So that's one of the huge things is like the material properties, thinking about the resiliency of that shoe. And so when we talk about material properties, we have to know what foam that shoe is. And this is, this is one thing that drives me insane with these companies is that they just have, they slap proprietary names uh, or they name them like marketing names. So we know nothing of the composition of that. Again, to Nike's credit, up front, they told us this was PBAX. That's not their that's not their foam. They license it from somebody else. Sure, they call it Zoom X, but they were up front and saying this is a P this is a PBA foam, polyether blockamide, um, instead of the traditional EVA shoes that are, you know, dominate running. And so again, maybe a lot of your listeners know this, but like Boost which was very different is what's called a TPU or an expanded TPU, thermoplastic polyurethane. And so, so if we, and we, we knew that, but, but now when all of these new foams come out, you just have, you know, companies slapping silly glittery names on them. Like, you know, Adidas says it with light strike. What is that? Like that, that doesn't do anything for me. Like I, that tells me nothing. Um, fresh foam, you know, like whatever, like, I, like that is not helpful. And and so I, I wish that these companies would say they don't have to put it on the shoe, but they can at least give it to us as consumers at somewhere like this is a TPU foam. This is a TPU EVA blend. This is a TPU washed with nitrogen or blown with nitrogen. This is a, like th like those types of things would be very helpful in helping us understand the material properties. So as it stands right now, I would be looking at a shoe thinking, I want a PBAX based shoe because I know that that is the most resilient. And then the other thing, this is, uh, this is also maybe equally important to the, the resiliency or it goes hand in hand is the compliance of the shoe. So how much, so you, we can actually think about these, these two concepts as being interconnected compliance 
is how much it compresses. And then resiliency is how much it gives back. And both of those have an energetic benefit. So like having something underneath your foot that compresses and is soft actually reduces the cost of running for most people. Now, the amount of that changes person to person, but then the amount that it bounces back, that's the resiliency. The percentage is also a further benefit. So understanding those characteristics of those shoes, you can start to you know, tease out which ones might be you know, start light more likely to be advantageous. And then of course you can look at the plate and, um, you know, Nike, the plate structure in the Vaporfly is, um, they did that very well. <laughs> That's, they nailed it. Um, and they have, you know, they have a patent on the exact curvature of that. Now I think the Saucony one is mildly curved, uh, and you know, that's going to be beneficial there. Um, but and then the Adidas, the the rods they do, and we can talk about this. I've I've run in that shoe, and it's it feels it it definitely does not feel like the Vaporfly. Um, and I I I don't know if I like it on my foot, but I could see how it could be beneficial for some foot strike types. But but yeah, so I think though all of those things going hand in hand, you can kind of start to pick out how they might compare to each other. But my big thing is like most of the other shoes are not as light as the Vaporfly. I mean, it's shocking how light that shoe is. Um, and then there, most of them are also not using like as good of the Saucony shoe uses P-backs. So that to me is like, I, I would hedge towards that being very close. Um, and the Adidas shoe, they don't tell us what their new like light strike pro foam is, but having been in it, it doesn't, doesn't feel like P-backs. It's not as compliant as the Nike shoe, it's stiffer. Um, I would hedge it on it being some sort of like TPU blend that might be blown with carbon dioxide or nitrogen to make it a little bit lighter. Um, I don't know though. It could also be a P-backs. It could also be a P-backs that they make stiffer because um, that you can tune when you're, when you're foaming these materials, you can tune those properties so it could be that, but we don't, we don't know. And that's one of the things that kind of bums me or frustrates me, but, but yeah, so, so just looking at the shoes like that, I still like, I still go back to like, I would hedge on Nike probably, I, I don't think any of them are going to be better than the Nike shoe yet. So, I mean, I, I guess here we are 20 minutes into the interview plus <laughs> minutes, and we, you're a PhD, you, you're a doctorate and whatever you are, very smart dude, let's just put it that way. And you don't know. So how in the hell is an average runner supposed to know? And how is Sepco just not supposed to act like this isn't a big deal? So on last week's podcast, I, I, I interrupted the show. I got a text from a guy. He's sponsored by a company, but he's going to give up that sponsorship because he wants to be able to run his marathon debut in any shoe that he wants. So he's tried the Vaporfly. He could not believe what it was like. He's like, it's a joke running 450 pace per mile. So do the math. I mean... That's 207, right? I mean, 207 high if he, if, he, if he keeps it up, which is pretty, used to be pretty damn good for an American. Um, although my brother is speculating he's European because he talked, I, I did say kilometers in there. I'm not revealing who this person <laughs> is. But here's the question I have. I said, look, dude, don't just limit it to Nike. I want to get you the best shoe. I want to send you the Adidas shoe. I want to send you Saucony, New Balance, whoever, Brooks. How could he figure out which shoe is best? I mean, it seems to me, first of all, if you're going to do this, just think about this from a pragmatic standpoint, you're going to have to spend $1,200 to $300 each, right? You're yeah. going to have to spend other five shoes. So you have to spend $1,500. And 
And then how are you going to, how would you test it? And if you don't know, I mean, do the shoe companies know? Do you think they've done this testing themselves? Or maybe, maybe the other question is, I said, we should do the testing yourself. In an ideal world, how much money would it take to stack up these five shoes and figure out which one is the best? And do you think anyone is actually going to do this in the near future? Yeah. So, uh, okay. A lot, a, a lot to unpack there. <laughs> um, I, I, in terms of doing, doing those tests, the gold standard to test these against each other. And this is what the, you know, the original Nike study did really well. Um, the, or the original Colorado study um, on the Vaporfly shoes did really, really well. And then the, the follow-up replication studies also did it. Um, so you're measuring your gas exchange, your, your oxygen consumption in each of those. Um, and then, so they were on treadmills when they were doing that um, inside. And so what you want to do is if you have, you know, if you have, if you have three shoes, you're going to be running, you know, four minutes, four or five minutes in each one of them measure at a submaximal pace, measuring your oxygen consumption. But then the really important thing that you want to do is um, you want to do it twice and you do what's, you know, the, the gold standard. Again, they did this in, in Colorado is uh, called mirrored block um, testing, where it's like if you go shoe A, B, C, the, or randomized block or randomized mirrored block testing. So you go shoe A, B, C, then you go C, B, A. And so you're doing essentially six trials for those three shoes. And then ideally you do it on two different days or even better, like four different days at different speeds. Um, and that's because running economy, the gold standard is a very noisy measurement. It's, it's not, it's not like you just slap it on, get a good number and go. It's like, you know, there are a lot of fluctuations both day to day and even within trials. So you have to do these things to very carefully tease out that difference. And now it's very easy to pick out that difference when we're talking these shoes versus racing flats because it's a you know four or five percent difference. But if we're talking in between shoes and we're trying to detect a difference of you know three, four, or five percent, it's going to be very easy to do a test that might not tell you there's a difference when we, when there might actually be a difference. So if it's a four versus five percent, the noise in all of those trials and day to day might overwhelm that. And so it might appear that there's not a difference, but there is. So anyway, so that's, that's the gold standard is to do these, you know, to do an oxygen test. To, so to do those tests, you need a physiology laboratory. Um, and, you know, universities have those. We have, we have one here. And so you would want to then contract out, you know, a university to this. Because the other thing is that you could do that once if you want to figure it out for yourself. But if you want to do a big study, you're going to need a lot of participants. You're probably going to need 15 to 20 athletes to, to wash out that noise because everybody's going to respond to it a little bit differently. So then you're looking now at, you know, 15 to 20 people, we're getting how many shoes for them, four or five of these super shoes. Um, and, and if we're going to test all of these on one day, you know, now we're talking eight to 10 trials um, doing this, we're going to need to do it on at least two different days um, and then we're talking, you know, so the, the equipment cost of all these shoes alone might be, you know, we might be running $15,000, but then talking about uni using the university facilities, uh, the, you know, the recharge rates on those equipments, the consumables and everything might be another five, $10,000. And then the, you know, the personnel, and then we have this fun thing in university research called indirect costs. That's basically the cost of the entire project. They slap on another, like 
50% surcharge to cover the basically the whole facility's operations of the university. So, I mean, depending on how much time the researcher is spending doing all this, because again, if it's me and I'm in the lab for a few hours with every single subject a few days at a time doing this, getting this data, then I have to spend at least equal that time going back, crunching all those numbers, doing all of that. Um, it's a it's a it's a long endeavor, and it's probably going to run you. You know, like I said, depending on that personnel cost, it could be anywhere from forty, fifty thousand, to maybe over a hundred thousand dollars, depending on how you, you know, set up and budget the study. What your university is. On the flip side of that, smaller universities that have more flexibility on like how much time the researchers can devote to this without certainly doing that could get away with doing it for pretty much just the cost of getting all of those shoes. So if you had a research, if you had a research lab, like a small college even, um, that, that could do VO2 testing with, you know, their, 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 uh, their undergrad physiology lab equipment or something, um, you could, you could get it done for a lot cheaper than that. So, so it's, it's reasonable, but it's not, it's certainly not, not easy. And I mean, one of the, you know, one of the tricks with like that Colorado study is they're doing these these sub max tests at 18 kilometers an hour, which is like 527 per mile pace. And you have to be under your lactate threshold for that. So you have to recruit 20 guys to come in that are essentially like 30 minute or, you know, 10 K runners. So, so it, I mean, recruiting all of it, it's, it's, it's very tough. And then, so I just, I just described like setting up this study for you. Now, if you want to write this up and publish it in a scientific paper, like that's where my like, you know, head goes against the wall is like, then writing that up and moving it through the peer review process of scientific journals can take anywhere from three, four, five, six months to a year even. Um, you know, like I, I think that Colorado study, they were working working on it in early 2016, maybe, because it was around the time of the trials, I thought. Um, I'd have to go back and ask about that. But I think it was early 2016, maybe even earlier. Um, And we didn't see that paper until the spring of 2017. So it takes a long time to do this. And it's, it's personally for me as like an athlete in the sport and wants to like talk about this stuff. Like I I get so frustrated at how slow that moves. Um, I don't currently know of anybody doing those tests and one of the problems with that is like, you know, the whole global pandemic thing that's going on <laughs> uh, has made in-person research at universities very difficult. But I'm hoping um, and maybe maybe if I get this going, um, we can talk about this in the future. But I'm hoping to do some of this test, testing once I can get back into my lab and get the approval to do this um, on at least on myself. And, and disseminate that because I have I have these shoes I you know I have the resources to do this so I'd love to at least get that on the board for everyone but it is it's very challenging to do it a, as a study um, so and I have not and I have enormous gratitude for like the 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 teams that did it up front so like Colorado one was great but then BYU and Grand Valley did replication studies quite quickly after that so I just described a very complex pro- process. But those two institutions ro- rolled out um, validation studies within the year, which was great. So, like, there's hope. Yeah, but back then there was only one shoe to test, so it was yeah, quicker. 
And also back then, I think the first study was sponsored, paid for by Nike because yeah. they knew their shoe was going to be way better than anyone else's. So of course they're going to pay for it. Whereas now, it doesn't sound like even the shoe companies may know if their shoe is as good as Nike. Yeah. They just sort of have a guess, right? Yep. And so this is actually another really important thing. So you you asked you asked you know if these shoe companies know how good their shoes are compared to Nike. My suspicion is yes. Um, I def- definitely Adidas and most likely Saucony. I mean, Saucony told us. Uh, you know, Jared, Jared Ward is at BYU and he was involved in some of the, like, I think he did the statistical analysis for that first Vaporfly study or that they did. Um, but then he also, you know, put out that nice vignette on how he tested the shoes for, for Saucony. So he knows, he knows, you know, they, they know how it stacks up against the Vaporfly. Um, but again, that's the original Vaporfly. The next percent is presumably better than that. Um, may likely, but, uh, anyway, so yes, these companies, most of them are probably doing that, but one of the other really important things, um, that, that kind of gets lost in a lot of this is testing on a treadmill. And this, this is important because, um, tread, like a treadmill will, will, is, is, is actually different treadmills are quite variable. And when we talk about how do we know if these shoes are better or worse than the other one or than, than each other, um, treadmills themselves could be washing out some of these benefits um, or the, some of the differences. Because uh, <laughs> this was something that Roger Crom, one of the, the lead researchers on the, the Colorado study, pointed this out earlier in the year of like, it's important to use a very stiff treadmill when you test these shoes. Because treadmill, the compliance of the treadmill, so just like I was talking about the compliance of the shoes, how much that squishes down, treadmills do that too. And so at that point, when we talk from a mechanical perspective, we're adding dampers in series. And so that essentially washes out the effect. So if you have a very bouncy treadmill, you could get two different shoes that are like maybe one's 4% better and one's 5% better. And that bounciness of the treadmill might make those pretty similar. And so it's actually very rare to find very stiff treadmills that are as stiff as running out on the roads. Like the ones at your gym are not going to be stiff enough. Like those will wash out the benefit. So if you look at your heart rate on like a very bouncy treadmill in like two different shoes, it might seem the same. And a lot of these companies doing this, if they don't have a super stiff treadmill in their lab, like they might be like, oh yeah, our shoe's about as good as the Nike. Wait, you know, let's go. Um, You know, our, this is actually a good story to, to illustrate that. When I, I did um, research rotation at the University of Cape Town, their Sports Science Institute in South Africa, and they have there, um, they walked in, I was, when I was touring the facilities, they're telling me they have this old like workhorse treadmill. It's like up on a platform, looks very industrial. It's what they did. They're testing it. And then they have this like brand new treadmill. They're saying how they they had this study, and this is this was the data I was working with, where they had a bunch of elite Kenyans come in. They measured their running economy, so they had them on this old treadmill. You know, it's one they they've used for decades, from you know back when Noakes was doing a lot of his running studies early on. Um, and then they had this this new treadmill, and they brought in a bunch of recreational runners for a running study, and their running economy on this new treadmill was as good as the the elite Kenyans. And they're like, what the heck? These are like how how are these like you know you know, overweight club runners as, as economical as these Kenyans. And so it it then launched them to do a study comparing these two treadmills and this one bouncy treadmill 
was 6% more efficient on your running economy than this very stiff treadmill. Um, and so it, what it illustrates is that when you're doing these studies on yourself, like if you want to measure your heart rate on these, or, or if you're a shoe company and you're measuring these shoes against each other, like just your treadmill could, could really wash out some of the effects that you would see on the roads. So that, that further complicates things to your question. Cause even like for me, our, our treadmill in our lab is awesome. It has a pressure plate underneath it. We can measure like ground contact times. It's, it's great, but it's very bouncy. And I wouldn't want to do this study in my lab. Like I wouldn't trust the data. I think it would, it would not be an accurate representation of the differences between these shoes. So that further complicates things when we, when we talk about the comparisons well, think, and whether or not these, these companies are doing that. If we're going to spend a hundred thousand dollars, it might as well raise another hundred thousand and do it outside with some sort of well, so you know, we could do that at Michigan. Portable, we have, we have, the, and that's the, that's the test that I want to do is we have a portable metabolic machine um, and we have an indoor 300 meter track. So my thought is I want to compare these shoes again, even if it's just in myself to do a case study or something, um, you know, over ground. Cause again, all of these studies are done on treadmills. I think it'd be, it'd be super interesting to measure that oxygen consumption, you know, over ground. But so maybe back back to the original question of your runner that you know you're you're uh, the guy who's trying to decide which shoe do I buy if if I only have three hundred dollars in my pocket and I want to you know get a pair of super shoes i'm I'm going to advise somebody to buy the next percent you know like that's I think having run in the next percent, the Alpha Fly and the Adidas, the Adios, um, I think the Alpha Fly is could be more beneficial for some people, but it's also I think polarizing. And this actually, this gets at another another thing I can go off on a tangent about of the original pros and cons of the super shoes, is as you get more complex with these shoes, that individual response becomes more and more varied. Um, and, and that's, and it makes this whole discussion that we're having about how to choose equipment is like, I don't like that. That's a place. I don't like that. My, as an athlete, I now have to start like asking the question of, you know, is, <laughs> are the turns too tight on this course for the alpha fly? <laughs> you know, like, like that is, I like the fact that these are, you know, these conversations are part of cycling. And I think that's part of the romance of cycling is like man and his machine. Whereas running, like, I, I don't like that we are, we have, we have all these complex questions with the equipment that are, that have so many unknowns. And not only do they have unknowns, they're just really, really hard and noisy to get known information on them. And I think that's a big, big con in the shoe column. So, so anyways, I think that the getting back to the alpha fly is, is it's, I think that's a, odd enough architecture that it will be polarizing for different people. And so I, I, again, if I was selecting one, I would probably hedge towards the next percent. Um, but, and then the Adidas shoe, I could see how for some people, like maybe four foot strikers with a very quick ground contact, cause it's much stiffer. The foam is stiffer, could be beneficial. But again, I think my null, the null hypothesis is that the next percent is a great super shoe. And I, <laughs> and that's kind of what I would go towards without, you know, if none of these companies are going to put up data to, to prove me other, you know, to prove me wrong, that's, that's what I'm going to think as a, as a consumer athlete, et cetera. 
Okay, but and then let's talk a little bit about the shoe that my brother and I both train in. Don't trash Hoka too badly. Okay. Because they were sponsored of the website, but the Hoka Carbon X. When I was talking to you offline, I said, you know, I, I've never worn a super shoe, but I wear this because you can train in it. And you said, well, that's not really a super shoe because it doesn't have the foam, but it has a carbon right. plate, right? So, yeah. you know, if you're Scott Fobble or somebody, how much time do you think he's giving up by not having a super shoe? Um, if, if you, if you had, if you nailed me down and said, you have to give a number, I would suspect it's on the order of like maybe a minute and a half, two minutes. Um, yeah. I mean, the, the, he, he may derive some benefit from the plate in those shoes. Um, you know, that's, we know carbon, carbon fiber plates, like not curved, um, that even the mechanical benefit of that is very noisy for people. And that's on the order of like 1% maybe. Um, so it, it could be slightly better than normal racing flats, but it's not, I, I, I would highly, I, I would bet heavily that it's not close to the next percent. Um, so I think he's leaving a lot of time on the table. So Alephine Tulemek winning the trials. Yeah. I don't know. It was pretty impressive, right? How do you Super impressive. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but, but that also benefit, I would say that to what was going on there is we actually don't have that many women, you know, at those trials that were not good, really like high level Nike athletes. Um, and so if, if a lot of the company, you know, like Saucony had a great shoe at the time, but we didn't have other, you know, other, the top Nike athlete type Nike female athletes that we had known. And, you know, in terms of like Jordan Hesse, Shalane Flanagan, Amy Craig, like, you know, Craig and um, Hesse were both injured or Hesse dropped out. I can't remember. Um, she just finished poorly. Craig was a DNS. Ah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. So like, I think that the top level Nike athletes weren't there. And that's not to t- like Alephine's performance was incredible. And that was, I mean, I was watching it with one of my friends and I remarked like, I mean, I was like, I was like, I, oh, it sounds, I mean, I, I, I like a lot of things Hoka does in the sport, but I, I thought, you know, I was like, I think she won in spite of the, of those, like, that's incredible. Um, she so. she ran in the Rocket X at the trials though. That still applies to what you say. Like Robert mentioned the Carbon X before, but the Rocket X doesn't have this yeah. advanced foam that you're talking about either. Neither of them do. They're both EVA based. And so that that gets back to one of the things that I was talking about when we're selecting and trying to analyze these shoes without data. It's important to look at the properties of of those foams. Yeah. And that it's EVA is it's just not as good as these other foams. So I've got the I've got the results. I mean, the one Nike athlete in the top 10 was Sally Kipiego. She makes the team by 11 seconds over Des Linden, who's wearing Brooks, so that Brooks did have a super shoe, right? Yeah, and that's one that I don't know enough about what Des is wearing. Uh, Worth Wheat, what was she? Was she Saucony? She's Saucony. Yeah. And then, and then uh, Stephanie Bruce, another Hoka athlete. They're all within 20 seconds of her. And then Emma Bates was another, she was 40 something seconds. A6. A6. So, yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I look at that and wonder. Right. But who, a little who, bit. I mean, 11 seconds, 11 yeah. seconds between Lyndon and Kipiego. Bruce is only 19 seconds back. I mean, you know, I, I mean, I, I, again, this is like, maybe this, this just, this whole conversation gets, gets at like, why I think this is such an uncomfortable part of the like thing that, you know, uncomfortable part of the sport, but it's like it, that, yeah. When you look at those numbers, me as, 
this is why this is why I like not having a shoe contract anymore because I can say this, but like those those ladies were leaving so much time on the table by not by not being in those shoes, right? Like that's 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 it. I mean, I would say those sock like like when, uh, when you're a single and, dude on a on a tiny contract and have another yeah. job. Oh, for it's sure. easier to give it up than when you've got a family like Stephanie Bruce yeah. and you've got a real sponsor and of course you've got to eat. So yeah, that's why it bothers me. It, it still does. But so I would say to that credit, to, to, to that, like, um, you know, to, to, to that point, I wish some of these shoe companies that didn't have competitive shoes would let their athletes run in that, in, in the better shoes. Like it's not a good look to, to not make a team or to not win a race in, in your own company's shoes. Like it is a bad business case. Like it is a much better business case to win a race, not in your shoes, have your, have your sponsor there, you know, on your Jersey and then be an Olympian. Like, I think the best case of this, that that's like a really, a really beautiful example is Steven Scullion with Under Armour. Right. So like he is, I, he's one of my favorite characters in the sport right now. His story is awesome. He's Irish marathoner you know, basically trying to work down from being a 217 guy to make the Tokyo Olympics. And he just has like ratcheted down, 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 down. And right when he started to get down to that like 213 range, um, you know, he's running for Under Armour and, you know, everybody, this is when the shoes are taking over and Under Armour says, yeah, go run in those shoes. We don't make a competitive racing flat with them right now. You're more competitive in these, do it. So he races in them, blacked out, qualifies for the Olympics. Under Armour now has an Olympic marathoner in Steven Scullion, and he's, you know, of 20 times more value to them. And guess what? In all of their promotional materials, nobody cares that he wore Nikes in the races that, that he was won. It's, he's always in Under Armour. It's like, and that they can use that in perpetuity. It's so much of a better business case. So I look at like someone like Hoka and I'm, I just think like, like if you guys aren't going to make this, you know, make shoes that are as competitive as these, like resole your shoes or do, do something like let, I mean, you saw like, um, uh, Sarah Hall's prototypes with ASICs, like that's, it's, it's actually not that hard to, to, to resole the, like a Vaporfly shoe or something like that. Um, get, like get like, just, yeah, like that, to me, that's, that's more on the companies. I don't blame, I don't blame Hoka athletes. Like, you know, I, I love what Stephanie Bruce does and Kellen Taylor, like they're awesome athletes. I just wish the companies would like be honest and, and give their athletes a shot, you know? But, but Jeff, wouldn't Hoka just tell you, hey, we had an athlete win the trials in our shoes. Like, why would we need to change? Yeah. And that's just bad science. That's bad analysis. That's 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 saying correlation equals causation. Um because my, I would, I would give them the counterfactual. What I said earlier is she won in spite of that, you know. Um, so, yeah. Well, so one thing I, when we were talking, you know, before the podcast, I guess last night setting this up was, I, I said, well, you know, I've never gotten one of these shoes because I don't really race and I only run twenty miles a week, and don't they break down after like a hundred miles? And, and you were telling me that that's not really true that they would last just as long as your normal EVA trainer. Is that true? I mean, yeah. And so, so I'm I, already, I'm already spending $200 for, for a pair of shoes. Why don't I just train and race in the super shoes every day? I mean, if you're only running 20 to 25 miles a week, like 
you're going to get a lot of life out of them anyways. Like, you know, um, so maybe, maybe, and like I said, they're really fun to run in. Um, but no, they, the, the life on the P backs, we, we don't know. I mean, this is only really anecdotal. I think I've, I think I've heard that P backs has a higher compression set than EVA, which means that it does die out or, or, or it uh, packs out faster. So it loses its, its material properties. But my personal experience is I've put, I've put over 200 miles on a few pairs of, of next percents. And I feel like they, even at that point, they're not as beneficial as when you first get them. So that really, that like magical benefit does taper off pretty fast, but they're still, I feel like they're still better than normal training shoes at that point. The only thing I would, I would caution someone against is they might wear very unevenly because of that high, high foam volume. So that could predispose you to injury risk. So I would, I would hedge away from maybe in the doing a lot of training in those, but, um, you know, both Nike and Saucony make plated shoes with TPU based foams. So like the Nike fly and the Saucony endorphin speed, like both of those have the same plate structure with, with TPU, which is kind of like that boost foam, um, similar, but it's like, but that foam like is, is, uh, shockingly, um, uh, robust in that you can put a lot of miles on those. So I would say like, if you want a hybrid super shoe to do a lot of training in one of those two would, would have presumably quite a, like way longer life than, than, uh, other shoes, but gets back to like p super shoe durability versus EVA, probably a little bit worse. Um, and then just depending on the person might wear out, you know, longer. I remember when, when the Vaporfly first came out, I, 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 I was talking to the guy who was at the time, the director of, of, um, footwear development at Nike. And I asked him what the life was. And he, he, he said it was, he said it was, same as EVA shoes and about 200 miles. And I was like, well, those are like conflicting <laughs> thing or, or at least conflicting in terms of what we, what we know them as. But my, I mean, my personal experience, I wear out EVA shoes very, very fast. Like I go through them by 300 miles. I can't run in them anymore. Um, and so the Vaporfly for me is about, you know, not much worse than that. So for you thinking about a training shoe, I'd highly encourage you to, uh, you know, to try it out just, just because that, that's another thing that I would say is it's 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 one thing to talk about these shoes and analyze them, but then you get in them and run in them, and it it is that like oh my gosh moment like this is different that like the first time I ran in Vaporflies, my first thought was this feels like biking, like this feels like a perpetual motion of like bouncing, and your legs don't feel as beat up as running, and it, it's a it's a strange feeling. Um, but I would say one more thing, if you're running to lose weight, maybe not in the vapor fly because, you know, you'll burn 4% less calories while you're uh, Oh, wow. Running. They've just destroyed the women's market. <laughs> there it so, goes. <laughs> um, you said it felt like a bite, but clearly you're a responder to the shoe. And that's one of the things, I mean, there's a couple other topics I want to get to. I don't want to have an hour and a half long interview, so we got to get going. <laughs> Some people apparently don't respond to these shoes. What do we know about that from a scientific basis? I mean, I've heard that Molly Huddle really doesn't get much benefit, so... 
the average person's getting a 4% running economy on the Vaporfly. But what, how much does that vary? I mean, let's say Molly Huddle is a 225 marathoner. She and Jordan Say are both 225 marathoners. Jordan Say goes to 221 because of the shoes. Is it possible that Molly Huddle doesn't improve at all? Yeah. So one of the things like in the first, the, in the, the three studies that we saw uh, on the original Vaporfly. So, and remember that 4% number is that very original Vaporfly. And actually the 4% from the Colorado study was the prototype of the first Vaporfly, which might even be a little bit worse than, so it's been iterated. But one of the things we saw in those three studies was that everybody responded to it, just some people more than others. And so that untangling, there are a couple of reasons for that. Um, we can, we can go into them, them if you want, like mechanically speaking, we don't, we don't, haven't quite unpacked it yet. Um, but like with Molly Huddle, I mean, that again was in the Saucony shoe and I, I like hedge towards like, I wonder if, I wonder if she went in the Nike shoe, like if she, if she would respond to that, cause it could be the curvature of that plate is, is, you know, a contributing factor. But my, again, it, it does get back to my question though, of how was that tested? Because it is hard to believe that she wouldn't respond to, to that shoe. Um, so if you're doing these tests on, again, if it's like, if it's a, I don't want to say a sloppy test, but if it's not that really robust um, protocol that I described on a very stiff treadmill <laughs> um, or overground, like it could, it could give you the appearance of not responding to it, which, which is a um, problem. Um, but I would, I mean, it could be that maybe she, maybe she truly only gets a very small benefit or, or, you know, even perhaps something close to zero. Um, you know, that's, again, that is like, that's a bummer, but that's kind of the reality of, of where we go. It does get to, um, yeah. So, so the, I mean, the reason that we have different responses to it is everybody, when your foot touches that ground, like every single person has a very different interaction with the ground. We all have different relationships with the ground when we run. Um, but the vapor fly, it's, it's fascinating because this is something we have, say in our treadmill in our lab has uh, pressure sensors underneath. So when you run on it, you can get a map of the pressure pattern of your foot through foot strike. When we have any, anybody who runs has a very unique pressure pattern underneath their foot. It's almost like a fingerprint. The crazy thing is that whenever we have people in vapor flies or even like the, the zoom flies that have those plates, like the vapor fly, when they run on it compared to like their normal foot strike, everybody has the exact same pressure pattern or rather the second half of their foot strike is exactly the same. It's, it's like that plate sucks the pressure of the foot into this exact axis along the shoe and spits it out. And so I think every single person has this different, you know, different pressure um, development progression in their foot. And because of the way that foam compresses, releases, and you move over this curved plate, every single person is going to have a very different, you know, interaction. It's like, it's like every single person is fitting a different key into the same lock. And it's, it's all, again, for by and large, for most people, it's substantially beneficial, but there are certainly people who really benefit more than others. Um, and maybe, you know, getting back to someone like Sandra Moan, like maybe that could be, you know, Canova has gone on and on about how he can't wear spikes. 
he could be somebody that that has like a really big breaking force or like, you know, maybe a lot of wasted energy at, at the foot strike um, that the Vaporfly kind of like over uh, uh, allows some of that energy that would be otherwise wasted in EVA shoe to be recycled much more efficiently. So that's kind of what's going on is everybody brings something different to the shoe and it, and it gives it back. You know, we saw it in terms of just responders and non-responders or not non-responders, but you know, the Colorado study showed us that different foot strike types responded differently to the shoes. And that could be that a heel striker maybe has some more wasted energy in terms of the braking force that gets recycled better in that efficient foam um, versus a four foot striker. But Nike then in the next iterations of the next percent, and then certainly the alpha fly beefed up the amount of foam underneath that forefoot. Because the other thing could be that a heel striker made better use of that big chunk of foam underneath the underneath their heel, compressed more and stored more strain energy. So they 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 changed the amount of, of material underneath the forefoot. So maybe that difference is less. And then the BYU study, we saw people with shorter and shorter ground contacts responded better to the shoe. Um, and that could be, you know, that could be because if you have a shorter ground contact, you have you may be having higher peak forces. Um, and so the shoe allows you to maybe better recycle some of that. I don't know. That's just conjecturing. Um, but so it is, it is complicated figuring out who responds and who doesn't. And that's, that's one of the bummers. Um, again, like it kind of shakes up, shakes up the competitive landscape and who, you know, who's, who's going to be good. Right. And the other thing, I don't really want to get into this cause we don't have time, but we know that it's, you know, 4% running and for what at a five minute segment on a treadmill. We don't know how much it's impacting you, how much it's saving your muscles and miles. Okay. You yeah. Of a so this, is, this is super important because this is something that I think is not, not being talked about enough. And we don't have a lot of, we don't have data, really good data on this, but the idea of, of we know the benefit in isolation, like when we do these tests up front. And that was for me, one of the shocking things when I saw this, there's so few things that are that beneficial just, mechanically like at up you know at one go but what we do know is over the course of a marathon or, or, or as you fatigue your legs your running economy worsens so we have data that you know people who have done whether it's treadmill marathons or measurements throughout the course of this or right after um, running a marathon on the roads your running economy gets worse after two three hours of hard running um, substantially worse my suspicion with these shoes um, is that they blunt that quite a bit because that that whether it's that compliant foam or maybe even the resiliency of the foam like makes the the trauma to your muscles so much less. So my suspicion is that these shoes preserve running economy. So if it's four percent better than your zoom streaks at the start or five percent better than your zoom streaks at the start, my suspicion is like as you tape as as your running economy gets worse and worse in the vapor flies maybe your running economy gets worse by 2 or 3% but in the in the zoom streak it might get worse by 4 or 5 plus percent and so then that difference is even greater at the end of the race and you know again we don't have um specific laboratory data on this but we actually do have two two interesting pieces of information on that uh, at a conference Two, two or three years ago, um, footwear biomechanics conference um, uh, in Canada, 
Nike, Nike presented actually some cool research that they had did out of their sports research lab. One of them was where they, they gave runners the Vaporfly and the Pegasus and had them run the same hard tempo three times in a week in each shoe and, or like two different weeks, one week in each shoe and clamped on the same heart rate. So they had to run at the same heart rate the, the whole time. And through the course of the week, I believe in each one, they got a little bit slower. It was like a Monday, Wednesday, Friday, like 12 mile hard tempo run. Got slower in each shoe, but they got substantially slower in the Pegasus. So that goes to show that through the week and as fatigue accumulated, the Vaporfly better preserved that. Then they also had data on muscle damage blood markers, <clears throat> excuse me, after the Portland Marathon. Um, so they showed that in the Pegas in runners in the Pegasus versus the Vaporfly, there were less marker, the muscle damage indicators were substantially lower in Vaporfly. So what that shows us is that it's less traumatic on our muscles to run in these shoes. And so I think that that's kind of the next piece that would be cool to see come out from a lab is what that's doing. Because I think that that, a, that could have a couple implications. One, that is that will further explain benefit from this shoe later in the race. But I think it, it actually gets at how it's fundamentally changing the dynamics and the race as we know it. The marathon used to be this race of attrition that anything could happen at the end because guys could go, you know, muscularly broke. And even if you, even if you were well-fueled, you could start cramping or your muscles just fail. And it's a beautiful, that's what made it so beautiful. Now, now I think you can bonk in the marathon, um, or you can, you can crack, but you can keep rolling again, kind of getting back to the cycling analogy where like you are no longer doing that trauma. Cause I mean, one of the fascinating things in, in marathoning is like, when you go broke, when you go bust, you are out of fuel and your body requires energy to cushion each blow. So when you run low on fuel, you have even less energy. So it's this negative feedback that like you bonk and you just destroy your body more and more. You become less economical and use more fuel and you don't have the fuel and it just breaks you. And now with these shoes, it's like, it kind of like turns that feedback loop off. So you don't have guys cracking. And so it turns into a totally different race at the end of the race. So for the non-scientists, the shoes that when you put them on, they felt like you were on a bicycle. You can now have, you now say you can keep rolling when you're tired, which I guess makes sense because they, yeah. <laughs> they feel like a bicycle 22 miles later. So let's, as we end up here, I want to talk some, a little bit about the tracks, about track spikes, which we haven't gotten to. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, you know, you wrote this paper in the, in the British journal or something a year ago asking for certain shoe, shoe rules. And basically, World Athletics came up with, they sort of followed your idea of having a certain stack height limit for yeah. the track. Some people now, like Ronald Canova and myself, I don't like this rule. Like, why can you wear a shoe on the road, but not the track? To me, they should say, you can wear the super shoes 5K on up and not. So I want to know. And also, though, just in the last month or so, they've now said you can, originally they banned prototypes and now say you can wear prototypes. So just real quick, what do you think of the idea of, why is the super shoe banned from this track? And is that a good thing? Why don't they just ban spikes with the super, with the, with the, with the big stack height? Yeah. And B, what do you think of prototype types being allowed on, on a track? Yeah. Good question. I, I, I am with you. I don't like the, the distinction between not being able, my, I don't like having 25 millimeters on the track and 40 millimeters on the road. I don't, I don't like that. I, I, I think 
my hope, my original hope with like a, if you created a reasonable shoe restriction limit, it could just be universal. And the idea that like you could have, so, I mean, my hope, if I, if I got to go back and, and have like keys to the kingdom originally, I probably would have set something at like 30 millimeters and say 30 millimeters for road and track, you know, do optimize in that space, however you want. If you want to put spikes on it, put spikes on it. So my hope would, I, I, I would like to have a universal standard there. I don't like the idea of that Canova would suggest of having, if it has spikes on the bottom, you know, 25 millimeters, if it doesn't have spikes, because then that's not a very operational enforceable definition. Like what, how would you define a spike? Something metal? Well, then what if you make a plastic spike that's just as stiff? Okay, something that has like some sort of radius of curvature that makes it a certain point. There are plenty of um, road shoes out there that even have like plastic pieces on the bottom or, or things that give it certain amounts of grip. So I think trying to, if as soon as you try and define something as a spike, you, <laughs> Nike, <laughs> they're they're typically the ones who like you know see see the line and want to walk right up to it. Um, we'll find some way to have the Vaporfly that has some sort of like hypertraction thing on the bottom. Um, so I think that becomes a tricky thing to enforce and would just add more complexity to it. I, I would I would advocate just having a, an absolutely universal rule. Um, I don't, I would disagree with some of his suggestions that like the athletes, um, <laughs> evidence that they could choose the spike or the, the flat um, is evidence that the spikes are better for them. I, I, I think that this actually gets to another thing that we probably don't have time to talk about this today, but the training effect of being in these shoes that like maybe for, for some people or some events like running faster and faster and faster, you may need to train in these shoes to alter your mechanics slightly. And I would think at faster speeds that's going on. Like, of course, a lot of athletes if you just give them spikes versus these flats and say, try these out, which one do you want to run in the competition next week? No athlete is going to be like, whoa, this feels totally different running in the Vaporfly. Yeah, I'm going to try that out at the world championships. Like, no, they're going to be like, okay, I know spikes are the way to go. I'll, I'll, I'll wear spikes. But like, think about this. If you could, you know, if your mechanics could slightly adapt to better harness that compression of energy and you could in a 10,000 meter, if not having spikes, costs you three seconds on the last lap, but you get back a half second on every other lap before that because of how it's saving your legs or, or you know, co costing less energy. Like, I like that math. <laughs> like, that's could be a net, net benefit. Um, I don't know the exact thing, but I, I don't, the idea that, like, the spikes are necessarily beneficial, even though they're, they're less, I don't know about that. Um, certainly something that needs to be um, played out more but I would say I, I'm with you. I don't, I wish world athletics would just adopt a uniform rule because then this gets tricky. Now, when we start looking at like high school or college, right? Like what are, what are these kids doing then? Um, that's huge in the, in the U S like that's going to be enormous. Do they say like no racing flats on, I mean, that makes sense at an elite level in high school or college. But like, if I go to like some dual meet up in Traverse city and it's Alpina versus Traverse city, that's where I'm from. Like, are they, they're not going to enforce that, but what if some kid runs nine flat in the two mile, you know? So like it, it becomes very complex when you have these different, different regulations, especially across bodies. So I, I would advocate for something uniform. Um, yeah. Okay. And then in the audio clip that, that you sent me to get ready for the interview, 
you said something on there and it really scared me because I look again, I looking back at 2016, huge asterisks to, to Rob's metal and, and a bunch of them. Cause it only a select people had these shoes. No one else even knew they existed and they won major medals. And our, the thing I'm wondering is in 2020 is history going to repeat itself because you said something like talking about super spikes. Now they don't have the huge, you know, heel, but Nike's got what is it, what's it called? The dragonfly. I don't know yeah. why it would work, but the quote you said was, I fear that, or something like, you think that 2020 is going to be the track times, what, 20? I think 2018. 2018 yeah. was to road, you know, marathon time. Yep. Why is that? What is so much better about these spikes? And should we ban prototype spikes? So I, oh, and to your, to your first question too, I don't like the idea of banning, banning prototypes. I actually love the idea of prototypes. One of the original, one of the original motivations for that um, are my, like my recommendation to just set a stack height limit. Don't do anything inside the shoe or anything. Like my idea was that you could create custom shoes. I love, again, I, I grew up in shoe stores and, and like in the romance of running shoes. Like I love the idea of companies making a custom shoe for somebody. If you just limit the stack height, then you can easily enforce that customizability. I think, you know, again, getting back to everybody having a unique foot, like it, it, companies should be allowed to do that. So I think that's kind of where I stand on prototypes. So I like that they're creating a space for allowing that. But when we talk about getting to your question about the spikes and what that's going to look like in 2020, we have the definition of what, what's an allowed spike. And that's, that's great. That's, I think that's actually puts us further ahead. But what I was getting at with the comparison of 2020, 2021 on the track is going to look like 2018 on the roads. Um, I don't think we have a shoe, we don't have other spikes that are competitive with Nike. So I think new New Balance might have one that um, I've heard and, and seen seen some, I think they're they're adopting the similar construction where it's like a thicker, resilient foam. And so we actually have, you know, anecdotally, we have seen New Balance athletes perform well, like um, the Jake Whiteman ran uh, uh, 329 Monaco. Um, in at Milrose. Yep. So, so I think, you know, New Balance might be there, but that's similar to like how Saucony in 2018 had their, or maybe it was 2019 that they had their shoe come out, 20, I, somewhere around there, but like they were the one that had something competitive. So I think it's going to be a similar thing where Nike athletes are just at a huge advantage with these spikes unless another company steps up. And I, I would suspect though that Adidas, Adidas got caught out on this, you know, in the shoes that going into the Olympics, I have a hard time believing they're going to not let their they're not going to they're, they're not going to have something for their athletes to race in. Like that's too obvious. Because again, to your question of how are these spikes super spikes, they follow literally the exact same formula as the shoes, just less of a stack. So that dragonfly spike is a Pbax foam, much like the Vaporfly, with a it actually has a Pbax plate, which is Pbax can be made into a, a rigid plastic. So it has a very rigid plate going through it. So it's much, it's a smaller, I mean, it's just, it's just, it's just a, a lesser version of the Vaporfly. And one of the interesting things there is that it doesn't have as much of that foam to compress, which may, again, for someone like Sandra Moon, like might really benefit from that high amount of compression in the foam, but it's substantially lighter than the Vaporfly. So getting back to the idea of weight being a determinant in the shoe, like less foam, so not as good as the Vaporfly on the, on the roads, but lighter, so better than that. So I think 
the spikes could be seeing a very similar benefit to the original vapor flies in terms of your performance um, because it has that same recipe but you know lower mass so yeah. is the scientist if they didn't have this stack height rule for the spikes do you think they would have a super stack height sprint? so my my suspicion oh sprint spike that that gets in that's a tri that's a I, I i actually always say like i think distance running mechanics and sprint mechanic distance running and sprinting are two different sports and two different things mechanically because they have different optimization oh you're, you're talking about 5k and stuff for the dragon yeah fly. i'm talking about the 5k for the dragonfly or even mile you know the zoom victory okay but so but like, let's, let's talk about the dragonfly. if the rule didn't exist do you think there would be a super stack height spike yes um okay. and and this it gets back to what i was saying earlier about i think the difference though would would you would have to spend more time training in it to learn for your body to learn how to use that mechanical advantage um and now that being said it's also not if some is good, more is better. It's not like I don't think that there would be an 80 millimeter spike or like some like stilts. Like at some point that becomes energetically suboptimal. You have to stabilize. But I think you would I, I would hedge that for 5K, 10K, something similar to the Vaporfly would probably be advantageous with spikes. Okay, but that's long distance stuff. I mean, your favorite event is the 100K. Most people's favorite event is the 100 meters. Are we going to see a revolution there in the sprints because of new spikes? Would this technology work? Is there is there a sprint spike? Do we know? Yeah. So the what was it, last year they came out with I think it was like was it the Viper Fly was was a it was a similar form to the Victory where they had underneath the forefoot like a the thick air bubble um, or air pocket. Um, you know, you can do we can do like really simple if we treat the body as like a very simple mathematical model with stride lengths and leg lengths, we can come up with ways to, to say that this will allow you to run faster by, you know, increasing a slightly longer leg. The human body is much more complex than that. So whether or not that would play out as an advantage definitely still needs to be studied. One thing that I thought was really interesting was that they, their first picture of that spike prototype had a massive heel on it and it looked more substantial. And then their, um, I think when they rolled it out commercially, that was blunted quite a bit. And I don't know if that was from World Athletics rules or if that World Athletics rule um, restricting the sprints to, I is this are the sprints restricted to 20 millimeters, whereas the distance events are 25 millimeters? Um, I think that might be. That sounds about be. right, yeah. And so that could be something where it now starts to become tricky to construct something in there that's more beneficial. But I would say sprints, if you were to have that thick shoe, sprints would definitely be something that you would need to train with that and learn to change your mechanics very slightly um, to better basically compress and, and store that. Because that's going to what, what having that compression underneath your foot, like something bigger as a sprint, it's going to extend your period of ground contact, which is usually actually good in sprinting because that's more time that you can exert force on the ground. Um, but it will change the whole configuration of how you run. So I think it's certainly, to me, it's a little, it's actually a little bit less clear um, or would be a little bit more complicated than distance running. Um, but I think World Athletics got in front of that by creating a slightly stricter rule on it. So that might not be as much of an issue as originally thought. Well, I could keep talking for hours, but I think John's probably got dinner to eat or something to do tonight. John, do you have any other questions I didn't get to? 
No, no, I think this is a great conversation. I just think there's so much ground to cover that maybe we need to have Jeff on in a couple of weeks and, you know, have it attack some of their other angles because I just think adding, you know, this is a pretty two and a half hour podcast at this point, I think, with our, our first segment. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm more than happy to continue to unpack all this stuff. I have, I have lots, of, lots of things we can ramble about. So more than happy anytime you guys want to talk about it. I think I'm going to make you email me the the, the, the uh, GoFundMe proposal. See how much money I need to raise so we can. If no company's going to scientifically test this, I want to be the one that does it. So Sweet. at least I can sponsor my my one guy and have him run like 204, then yeah. retire on retire on the spot. Well, All that's right, like an, an agent cut is like what 10, 15, 20 percent. And if he you know if he pulls down. $5,000 in prize money or $10,000, like, boom, like in, invest that in the next Tesla in a few years. You'll, oh, you'll don't feed his delusions, Jeff. He's <laughs> already got a big enough head. So, and Jeff can see, I don't know, I don't know if we talked about this at the beginning. I have my 15940 asterisk shirt. This is like one of three that were made. We have a select number of the ones you're getting in black and white. But Jeff, what do you think of the red one? Do you want me to send you one of these two? Uh, I don't wear red because okay. that's the the, com the color of the Ohio State Buckeyes, which is like the worst institution on the planet. And I have no interest in having anything that would tie me to that university on any, or, I mean, if you want to call it a university. Um, yeah, I thought it was just that school down south. Is that what you call them? Or Yeah, yeah. And to get to it, I think they say you go you go south till you smell it and then east till you step in it or something like that. But um, yeah, so I don't wear red, but... The black looks great. We're definitely wear the black. <laughs> Very good. All right. Well, thanks for being on the show, and um, hope to have hope to have you on again. When all the world records are made meaningless this summer, we'll have to. Yeah, we can do context, a recap. Yeah. Asterisks abound. All right. Thank you. All right. See you guys. Thanks.